Restaurant Unstoppable episode 1029 with Bo Davis. No, I think the restaurant stuff that I'm talking about is all about networking, at least in my experience, right? It's getting to know other restaurateurs. In my experience, restaurateurs want to help each other. People on the outside like to think that we're all in competition, when in reality, we're all in, a, uh, we're all in bed knowing how hard it is, and we all do want to help each other. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Look, there is a lot of elements to consider when growing your restaurant. Like, are you connecting with your diners and with the right message? And could your kitchen put out more orders than your dining room has room for? There's so much to consider, and it can be overwhelming when you got into this business for the food and the people, and that's why I recommend Pop Menu, and that's why restaurants get Pop Menu, frankly. Pop Menu is technology for restaurants that are ready to grow. For a limited time, get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Restaurants Unstoppable Network is coming back and we are stronger than ever before. So during the pandemic, I started the network as a way to evolve and adapt. And when things opened back up, I was on the road again. That is my happy place, but there is value in the network. But I knew I couldn't be on the road and do the network at the same time. So I recruited Callan Miola to be our community manager, and she is killing it. She is organizing things like I could never have done on my own, and we are getting after it. So if you want to be a part of the conversation, the podcast is the leading edge. We're out there. We're turning over rocks. We're finding leads. The network is where we pull back the layers. We dive deep. We connect our listeners to the tools, services, and organizations that are being referred to us organically. If you want to be in the network, act now because the first 50 people to sign up will get a free t-shirt head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash whatever the episode number is find the link or the banner in the show notes and you will get a 30-day trial to get into the network get a free shirt and if you opt into the one year plan we will throw in a hat and a mug thank you in advance this episode is brought to you by restaurant systems pro and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. 
Restaurant owners and operators, you can make a difference in the lives of your staff and their families by supporting CORE, which stands for Children of Restaurant Employees. CORE is a national nonprofit that provides financial grants to food and beverage service employees with children when either the employee, their child, or their partner faces a life-altering medical crisis or natural disaster. Not only can you share CORE as a benefit in resource with your staff, you can also donate directly or host a fundraising promotion. Core critically needs your financial support to continue to provide relief to restaurant employees that qualify for a grant when life does not go as planned. Support of Core allows you to give back to your employees and restaurant families across the country. Visit coregives.com to learn more together we can make a difference in the lives of those who serve us daily with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest co-founder and ceo of margin edge bo davis my man bo are you feeling unstoppable today i am feeling unstoppable i'm excited to talk to you today. dude i'm excited to be here and i want to publicly just thank you and margin edge for all of your support over the years i want to say you've been supporting the podcast going back before 2020 like awesome 2018 i think this awesome. is the first time we started talking so thank H- you for happy all your to support do yeah man um it's great to be able to sit here across the table from you and to share your story not only as a, a tech entrepreneur but as a restaurant tour uh, you have a really incredible story from dropout to uh, <laughs> tech startup to uh, i think you've done a lot of volunteer work too i'm really excited <laughs> to get into this man but let's get that motivation. It's a little bit of a random walk i'm yeah, afraid dude, i love random <laughs> let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? All right. So, uh, I did, uh, I studied philosophy as an undergrad, so I'd like to go a little bit Ooh. deep. And for me, it's, this is not necessarily a success mantra, but it is absolutely a life mantra. And it's, uh, if you walk over to my office, it's printed on the wall over my desk in very big characters. And it is the unexamined life is not worth living. It's a quote by Socrates. And, uh, the heart of it to me is, you know, we go through our day to day and we're, usually in autopilot, right? We're doing things day to day and just making decisions the same way we made them a few minutes before. And the unexamined life is not worth living tells me that I need to stop every once in a while, particularly when the big decisions are happening and really think about what does it mean? What does it mean? And that's what separates us from animals. That's what makes us human is that consciousness. So, you know, it's the road less traveled. It's the, uh, true to yourself. It's, it's the unexamined life is not worth living. When did you figure this out? How long into your journey? So early, 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 I was uh, inspired by Plato when I uh, when I first started college. I read The Republic, and it was a book that blew my mind and inspired me to study philosophy in my undergrad. And uh, and really, yeah, it's been it's been central to how I've thought about the world ever since. I think I'm just starting to realize this as I like roll into my early 30s or mid 30s. I started to realize you got to slow down to speed up. And I think as a restaurateur, we're guilty of this a lot because you're working 80, 90 hours a week. You don't have time to slow down Um, until you get to that point until like, but I I mean, you have to eventually slow down, choose to unplug for a little bit or slow down so you can work on the business and not in it. Right. 
I don't think you can do both or you yeah. just have to like maybe put in. A- yeah. And I think that's true for yourself too. Even right. if it's not restaurants, right. It's just life, right? Like right. life is busy, whether you're a parent, whether you're working in the restaurant business or in other industries, you just, you're, you're in a rush. You're doing things. You're trying to get something done. You're, you're focused. And I think the, the life goes very quickly like that. Right. And if you don't take a minute and stop and think about what you're doing and are you really making the decisions that are going to get you where you want to be? It's easy to just keep doing the same stuff over and over and over again. I love it, man. Great way to get this thing started. And and, I mean, take us to the beginning. Where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Uh, it's funny you mentioned dropout. So, yeah, I, uh, I had a sort of non-traditional beginning in my career for a technology entrepreneur, I guess. Um, you know, I think about the, the dropout stories of like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, people who are too smart for their schools, apparently. I was not that. I failed seventh grade. I failed 11th grade. I got in a lot of trouble and had to find another route. And so I dropped out uh, early and... And, uh, and went into community college and then, you know, did a couple of years of that and transferred to a local university and then, and then to GW. But, you know, I had, a, I had a fairly rough early beginning, but I think that's part of what gives me that sort of um, that desire to work really hard and to, to focus and this, this, you know, be thoughtful about what the decisions are that I make. What was the struggle for you? I'm sorry, said again? What was the struggle for you? I mean, you were, you said you failed out. What yeah, was the struggle? drugs. Okay. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, it's it's a thing, right? As a yeah. teenager, I uh, I went off the rails a little bit. We can leave it at that. But I uh, I um, got in a lot of trouble and found myself in a position where, like, the only way I was going to really get on the straight and narrow is if I changed everything, like everything, my school, my friends, my life, and uh, and. You know, I had to make that decision early on. I actually haven't had a sip of alcohol now in 30 years. Oh, wow. Um, not quite 30, 28 years, something like that, but a long, long time. Um, so, yeah, I made that decision a long time ago. I am kind of curious. Do you think your exposure to drugs and alcohol opened your eyes to philosophy? Did you think it expanded your mind at all? Maybe not good for, like, the organized school system structure discipline, but do you think that it maybe gave you different perspective? Yeah, I don't know if the drugs and Not alcohol trying to gave encourage me, people to yeah, no get worries. wasted. I don't know that it gave me <laughs> that perspective or that I had a hard time staying on path and that was a way to sort of, you know, experiment and see things differently and 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 live a little bit differently. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it is not the most productive way right. to accomplish that. Uh, right. You know, I'm, I, there are more controlled things these days with microdosing I read about and, and <laughs> Silicon Valley and stuff. And that stuff is probably much better and more controlled and in smaller portions. What I was doing was not, not I mean, something is, I would recommend. That is kind of one of the cool things about legalizing everything is that it, we, it, I think it, it encourages or it enables us to do it in a way that is safer, where we know what we're putting into our bodies. We know exactly to the milligram. You know, so like it's it's safer in that sense. Well, it's also I'm a huge believer in decriminalizing of all of this stuff. I mean, criminalizing drug abuse is like it's just crazy. People who are uh, obviously not making the best decisions in their life, then being treated like criminals instead of people who have addictions and need help uh, is, you know, it's bad for society. It's bad for the individual. It's yeah. Right. We could probably talk about that for a long time. Yeah, I'm going to a rabbit hole. I think we're only like eight minutes into the conversation. So, yeah, I'm still 17, just for the record, <laughs> yeah. in the story. So you, you, uh, you, you run into drugs and alcohol early. It's, it causes challenges for you as a young man. Uh, eventually, you get out of it, though. I mean, you have two masters, right? So I do. At yeah. what point, what was the tipping point for you? Like, what, what caused the tipping point? Well, uh, you know, a judge that threatened to put me in jail. Uh, yeah, drug rehab, that sort of stuff is where I turned. But basically, I realized that 
uh, if I wanted to do things, <laughs> you know, it's funny, it actually goes to the Socrates quote, if I wanted my life to be different, I needed to do different things. And that sounds awfully obvious. But when we look around, we realize we all come, we all live on patterns. And particularly when you have a drug problem, or, you know, any kind of emotional distress, you tend to repeat unhealthy patterns over and over. Right. And so the realization that I needed to do something different was actually difficult and fairly profound. And I had my bottom as they talk about. And, uh, and yeah, I, I walked away from it and started a new life and, and went into community college and started in the English 001, the lowest possible class the community college offered. And it took a couple of years before I could even transfer to another school and, and work my way up. But it took me six years and I got my undergraduate. I ended up graduating from GW and six years later. What is GW? George Washington oh, okay, University. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah, it must be. That's, uh, that's right here in Washington. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. what brought me here. Right. Um, so what changed in you? I mean, you had this like fear of like what the, you know, the, the judge put this fear in you, right? If I screw up again, then I'm going to be in trouble. But does something else change internally? Yeah. I mean, something internally snapped, right? Like, um, the fear was deeper than the judge. The fear was that there was not a path out of my current lifestyle that, um, that was uh, tenable. That was, that was something that I could come to terms with, right? I was on a path that was very, very destructive, um, I had been thrown out of multiple schools and I mean, it, it, I had been down a, a nasty road. And so, uh, and I was still very young, but I looked around and like, there just was nowhere to go. And so I knew that if I wanted to get on a different path, I had to make a clean break. And so I, um, you know, uh, started in the 12 step programs and, and did the whole thing. And, and, uh, like I said, left school and restarted. So any key pivotal transformal or transformative um, experiences through school before graduating and, and launching your first business in 1997. Yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the things that I, I think about and it actually ties to that book, the the Republic. I, um, I read that while I was still in community college and I was, I, I had read almost nothing right my whole life. And, and I picked that up randomly in a bookstore. Cause I was like, I need to read something old. I don't know. I haven't read anything. So I need to start with something old. And is I that an audio book. Uh, the Republic. I'm yeah. sure it is. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's not read by the author though. Huh? Uh, probably, <laughs> probably not. Probably not. Um, uh, but, uh, Anyway, so yeah, I read that and it blew my mind. And, and as I went into college and started studying, I, I felt like I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. My mom was an entrepreneur. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. And, uh, and uh, I had always thought that. And I started in business classes and I was looking around and realizing that everybody was studying the same thing. And at that point, it was mid-90s. Everybody wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I was like, well, if I want to do something different and start something, I need to do something different different, right? Like I can't sit here with a bunch of people in the same classes saying I'm going to do something different. And so I looked around the school and I had read the Republic and been inspired by it. And I went to my first philosophy class and the, I'll never forget the professor wrote on the board, philos sophos, which is the breakdown of the word. And it means love of wisdom. And I was like, sweet. If I got to study something, why don't I study wisdom? Wow. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's exactly what I do with this podcast. Too. Yeah. It's really about just taking these giants, giving them a platform to stand on, to, to pay it forward. You know, like what's that saying? We all, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Right. But I mean, it, there's power in that. So why was that so appealing to you? 
Well, like I said, I wanted to go to the roots. I knew if I wanted to start a business and do something new and interesting, then I had to have different perspectives than other people, right? If I right. did the same thing everybody else did, I'd have the same thoughts everybody else had. And so I just, I just wanted to mix it up. And so I, I, uh, I started studying philosophy, but I luckily, uh, <laughs> well, philosophy didn't pay. So I got a job uh, at the university writing code, basically developing uh, web applications for professors. And this was 1995, which was before that was a thing. And back then it was a big deal that I right. could do that. And so they paid kind of a ridiculous amount. And, uh, and so I was doing that and I worked my way, you know, all six years I worked my way through school. And, um, and so at the end of it, I had learned a lot about how faculty members interacted with technology and what it took to get them, uh, online. And so I, that was my first company, basically right out of college. I started a company called Prometheus, which was an educational software company to help faculty online. I was wondering if you were an aliens nerd. Like the, the aliens? Movie aliens? No, aliens, I don't even know it. No, this is spreaders. Greek. This is Greek philosophy. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't even know. Is there a science fiction? I'm yeah. sure there is. There's probably a bunch of science fiction references. Uh, but I am kind of curious because you said that the the appeal to you um, with studying the, this like uh, philosophy was going back to the roots, right? And studying the roots. What did you learn about the roots? Well, I mean, I think what's awesome about philosophy, and, and there are other fields, obviously, as well, that are similar. But what's awesome about philosophy is that it teaches you to think it teaches you to argue. It teaches you to dissect information. And uh, to me, that's what I mean by the roots. Like to this day, like what do I do? I mean, I analyze information that I get and I try to make decisions and I try to be, try to be smart about it. And I just feel like philosophy is phenomenal training for thinking. I mean, love of right. wisdom, right? Like what, what, you know, it's literally the study of thought and it's some of the greatest thinkers of all time, right? Whether it's Kant and Kierkegaard or Phil or, you know, Socrates and whatever, like it's, yeah. I don't know. Do you ever find yourself finding or bumping into contradicting advice? Oh gosh. Isn't yeah. that the most frustrating yeah. thing? No, I actually like it. No, Dude. no, that's actually my favorite. Why? I, uh, I find when everyone agrees, I'm very concerned. And I think when you find conflicting advice or conflicting philosophies or conflicting structures, that that's where you find truth because it's somewhere in there, right? Like it's, it's, um, yeah, I look for things like that. Like, right. like I talk about it all the time. Like with raising kids, if I ask you about your life and what's the most important things that have happened in your life, you're going to point to the difficulties in your life. Right. But then you raise your children and you try to keep them from difficulties, right? Like, what the heck? That's that's the contrast. Those are the contradictions in life that I find the most interesting. I, th you know, it's weird because I think as it's in human nature to bring order things right like that's what we do we try to organize things. Sure. We try to make sense of the world around us and then we try to construct it in a way that's easy to process but i think we forget that the world is just <laughs> chaos you know there like there it's is hard to no get your head order, around right no matter I, how i'm actually of the belief that there is order we just haven't been able to figure well, it out I yet think there's both <laughs> can't you make the argument that there's both i mean that isn't that well yeah and, and you can certainly argue also that there's order but we have no ability to comprehend it so right. does that mean there's really order right, right. so exactly yeah, yeah. This is good. I'm liking this. So you, you have, so, okay. So you studied the past. How did the, yeah, past I'll give you another conflict, right? So yeah, I was please. in, uh, I was in university. I was writing this, doing this web development for professors and, uh, and it wasn't called Prometheus yet, but I was starting to automate it and starting to build towards software. And so I met with the professor at GW, uh, I won't call people out. It's been a long time, but he was the professor of databases and internet technology, which was exactly what I was doing. And I said, Hey, I have this thing and I can automate all this work I'm doing for the professors. And this was like 95 or 96. And he looked me dead in the eye and he's like, there is no way that you can standardize what professors do so that you can automate this process. And I was like, huh, 
right? That's, I love it. It's contra, it's the exact opposite of what I thought. And so I went out and I did it, right? right and prove it not wrong. just me, others, right? right? And like, and it wasn't just about proving them wrong. It's like, you know, you can't just trust the experts. You have to have different points of view. You have to have experience and, uh, and be open-minded and be willing to test assumptions and, um, and not just take a book on it at its cover. Right. For sure. So I'm assuming that this conversation, this inspiration kind of is what led into Prometheus for you. Yeah. I mean, I was doing it and I just, that is actually, I wouldn't say it inspired me as much as I found it amusing because that was something I got to reference for years later, but, um, I would have done it anyway, but yeah, the, uh, the Prometheus basically was a product that I started on campus at GW, got a bunch of faculty using it, got a bunch of students using it. They dug it and then licensed it to a Vanderbilt. I was still, I mean, I must've been 21 years old or something. I was young. Uh, but then actually got the university to invest in scaling it up. And so GW invested out of their endowment, which was the first wow. time they'd ever done that at that point. It was like a 21, 22 year old kid. It was, it was like a once in a lifetime opportunity. And it was not because I was particularly smart. It was because the economy in 96, 97 was like, everyone wanted to find the next internet thing. Right. right. And no one knew what it was because it was all so immature. I mean, so people this just throwing years before Google and Amazon. Right. Yeah. This is before the bubble even really got going. It was the early days. And so, yeah, the university wanted to be in something and I had something. And so it lined up beautifully. Um, yeah, we went out and we licensed it to Stanford, Wharton, Columbia, some of the top universities in the country. Um, it was fun because I was a high school dropout. I barely graduated college. I had a 2.01. You need a 2.0 to get out of college. I had a 2.01, which I only had because I had a 197 and I had to go ask the chair of my department for a grade bump on a class that I'd finished two semesters earlier so he could get me out. And, uh, and then I was out licensing software to like top tier universities, which is so what slightly is, ironic. I think you kind of teased with telling the professor what you created that, you know, you could uh, basically replace the, not replace the professor, but no, 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 no. And standardize. Yeah. yeah. Publishing the, the professor's information. So basically the, the early days of this stuff, and you, you mentioned earlier that you had used Blackboard, but um, the early days of the course management systems in the 90s were about publishing a syllabus, allowing threaded discussions, uh, publishing grades, allowing for quizzes, right? A lot of the basic stuff now that you'd kind of roll your eyes at. But yeah. back then, like, nobody was doing it online. Yeah. That was not a thing. Like, the internet was, you know, we were in Netscape days, and yeah. uh, most people don't even know what that means. Um, and so, so that was a thing, and that's what we were licensing. Cool. So 97 to 2002. Yep. So five years of work being a tech startup. Yep. Um, what I mean, I'm sure you have tons of life life lessons <laughs> just from this first. You know, en- I made endeavor. all the mistakes. I mean, I literally I was a philosophy grad who had never worked for anybody uh, who raised money and started this thing and. Uh, just didn't know anything about software development on scale, didn't know anything about running a business or whatever. And so um, we got some great deals. We grew. We had a good exit. We sold to a company that was one of our competitors. Um, but uh, but it, was, it was a terrific learning experience for sure. What was the biggest learning experience for you? Well, I, well, there were a bunch of things. One of them that was definitely a takeaway was that I needed to understand finance better because uh, I heard later in, when I got a master's in finance, one of the teachers said... Uh, people spend a lot of time working in a company, but they don't realize they make all their money negotiating their entry and their exit. And, uh, and finance is all about negotiating your entry and your exit, right? Your relationship with your investors. And at 22 years old, I knew exactly nothing about that. Uh, and so, yeah, that was definitely a learning experience. All right. I'm gonna have to drill down deeper into this. So what advice can you give us for negotiating your entry and your exit? Well, I mean, it certainly depends on the industry, right? Um, I think with restaurants, it's, um, 
uh, it's super important that the relationship between you and your investors is not a handshake, that it is well documented and that it is fair on both sides. One of the common structures that, that I've seen a lot that I like a lot is, um, and the percentages can vary, but 80, 20, 70, 30, where basically investors that are coming in get paid back first with a carried in interest rate. And then they get a smaller percentage of the profits in the long term. And so that allows the early earnings to go to the investors so that they're protected and they're not getting, they're not getting killed. But the long-term profits still can stay. The majority of the long-term profits can still stay with the restaurant. Um, I'm a big believer in that structure, but uh, it really does depend on the industry. Certainly in the tech industry, that is not what those deals look like. Where do you think restaurant tours go wrong in those early negotiations? <sighs> Leases. Um, uh, leases are a big one, right? I mean, I think um, the number of restaurateurs that I've been friends with and have known that have signed leases that are completely in their own signature um, is just scary. And the downside of those leases often are, you know, 10-year leases with, with really meaningful rents. And so, you know, you open a restaurant, you do everything you can, you work really hard, and sometimes it just doesn't work. I know I've had a good number of failures, which we'll talk about later. And, uh, and it's one thing if it fails and it's a corporate shell. It's one thing if it fails and it's got, you know, your money and your friends and family, which is very, very hard. But it's another thing if it's your entire personal signature, right? And they can come after your home right. and they can come after everything you own. And so setting up that lease, setting up the corporate structure and, and you know, even multi-units, I see this all the time, multi-units that don't set up. Uh, subsidiary. So even if they're all 100% owned by the parent, you really want each restaurant in a separate sub so that if there's a slip and fall, if there's a, you know, something bad happens that is beyond your control, you're not, your liability isn't the entire you entity. You cut off a limb versus the, you know, yeah. lose the whole yeah. shebang. So when I had, you know, I had, a, uh, you know, 10 restaurants, we had each subsidiary had when they signed leases, the parent would guarantee a portion of the lease and that would be negotiated. And so we knew there was some liability on it, but the liability was capped. And when things went bad, which they did for us, and we had to close a bunch of restaurants, that capped liability is the difference between me being in bankruptcy and not, right? It's a big deal. And I think, I think a lot of restaurateurs just don't know and they go into it and they well, sign it because they think they have know. to. Yeah, yeah, and the landlords, in my experience, will always tell you that everyone does it this way and they want your signature and you'll never get a space if you don't do it, that kind of stuff. Where does one go to learn more, aside from going to get a master's in the subject? Well, we didn't cover any of that in my master's in finance. My <laughs> master's in finance was more uh, you know, investment banking, portfolio analysis. And learn the language. No, I think the restaurant stuff that I'm talking about is all about networking, at least in my experience, right? It's getting to know other restaurateurs. In my experience, restaurateurs want to help each other. People yeah. on the outside like to think that we're all in competition, when in reality, we're all in a... We're all in a uh, we're all in bed knowing how hard it is. Right. And we all do want to help each other. I've definitely known, I've picked up on a pattern that it's the most successful restaurant tours that are willing to share the information. And it's weird. When I first started this podcast, I was terrified that I was crazy that, that I could think I could start a restaurant podcast, go to all these leading restaurant tours, and they're going to spill their guts. Yeah. Like, good luck. Right. Yeah. Like these guys are going to share their trade secrets. But there is definitely a pattern that the most successful restaurateurs are there because they're the most willing to give it. And that information, they, they develop a reputation where people know, go work for this person because you're going to learn. It's not just a paycheck. If you're serious about hospitality, they'll create opportunity for you. And, yeah. And, and, and trust, right? right? People who are open and, and willing to communicate are the people that you're going to trust, whether you're doing business with them, working for them or, or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you mentioned trust because I feel like trust is like on the polar opposite of contract. Right. Hmm. But I think you need both. 
So like there's something to be said yeah, about trust. It depends on, it depends on, I think the devil's in the details on that one. Yeah. I mean, for, with investors, I think contracts are wildly important. You have to trust, but you need a contract. And, and what is the saying? Contracts keep trustworthy people honest or something. It's, it, they're basically, you know, the point is having a contract allows you to um, not have to worry about a lot of possible outcomes because you've predefined. So I'll tell you, like when I started my first restaurant in 05, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I started it with two partners that I was in business school with and doing the master's in finance and, you know, a lawyer, a banker and myself. And one of the things the lawyer did, that's a great team. Um, uh, it sounds like a bad joke, actually a lawyer, a <laughs> banker and a tech entrepreneur walk into a bar and decide to open one. Um, but, uh, how many uh, restaurants started like that? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little scary. Uh, where was I going? Oh, but the lawyer set it up in such a way that basically, you know, it was very clear what happens if any of us decided not to stay in the organization so that, you know, we all trusted each other. And as people peeled off, there wasn't a big fight over who gets what, where, when, yeah. and how. It was I mean, all it was all agreed. I definitely lean in the direction of having a contract and having it re- spelled out. So if there's... I mean, over time, people forget what they say. The expect you have, you need a center line. You need to, to come back to something to hold people accountable to. Like I'm 100% for contracts. But have you ever, you know, Stephen R. Covey, right? Or Stephen Covey? Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. Seven yeah. Habits. Highly yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His son wrote a book, um, "The Speed of Trust," and this idea hmm. that like there is like it's back to that that, that those like that contra- contradicting advice, yeah. right? Like have a contract, you know, be a trustworthy person, yeah, and, and like. Like the speed of this, like, hey, like, I have integrity, you have integrity, yeah. I honor my word. Things can happen so much faster. Oh, 100%. And, and the reality is a contract, it is very rare that anyone's going to court over a contract, right? So right. even if you have a contract, if you don't have trust, there's very little you can get done. I completely agree. Um, it's not like yeah, I've done a lot in my trust. <laughs> no, no, no. I've done an awful lot in my career without on stuff that didn't have contracts. We had a, I had a general contractor. The first couple were really hard. And then I found a guy, really a company I really liked. And, um, and he opened, he built six restaurants for me around the country. And these were good sized projects, not huge, but good sized projects. And, uh, and you know, long story, but we ended up heading into a project that was, you know, a million dollar project and we didn't have time to do the contractual stuff. And he called me and he was like, you know, we're starting and we don't have any paper on this. And I was like, yeah, I'm good for it. And he was like, all right, we're going. And like, he built me a restaurant without a contract. Like it happens all the time. <laughs> you was, know, like, like I, I think the I'm not only, sure I'd recommend that, no, but I it don't. went, it yeah, went like, well. nobody recommends it, but we all do it. Like, yeah. and I think the only place I have contracts right now as an operator in my business is with my sponsors because I think that is probably the most official relationship I sure. have where like they, they make it happen. You yeah. Know? So, I mean, you, uh, with my editor, you know, we used to fling pizzas together. Like we just nice. trust each other. You nice. know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. like, um, but uh, you, you cannot underplay the, the significance of a contract. I do want to dive deeper. Um, because I do think people in the restaurant industry, um, not in contracts, but this idea of uh, negotiating. Sure. Um, because you spelled it out well, but I kind of want to like really slow it down and make sure yeah, we're interested. Because yep. people, when when these restaurateurs, we're risk takers, right? We we just go for it. We have our blinders on anything yeah. we need to do to get that place open. Yeah. And we know that we need to take risks to yeah. make it happen sometimes. But Maybe a little too confident sometimes. I know. I, right? know I, felt, I, I, I fell into that. Yeah. But, but back to that structure, you said 80, 20, 70, 30. Yeah. You so said it kind of fast. I want to make sure we got. Yeah. So I, I would take a step back and say, essentially, depending on what you're trying to do as a restaurant tour, I would put it in two buckets, right? There is the, I want to be sweet green Kava. Uh, you know, I want to build a growth concept where we're going to open a bunch of restaurants under one brand name. And in that, 
And those investments, they actually do look more like technology investments where your investors are buying equity in the company. There are no dividends. There's no anything. You negotiate a price. They buy 10%, put some money in. You use that to build restaurants. And then you go out and you raise more money and you build more restaurants, right? That's how Kava, Sweet Green, folks like that grow because they're, they're no dividends. They're growing it. They're just trying to build an, a company that they're either going to sell or take public. So that's, that's one bucket, right? But that's not what most of us are doing. Most of us are doing, um, you know, a neighborhood restaurant group kind of thing. We're going to have 10, 10, 15, 25 yeah. restaurants. And in those where each one is a different brand and you're really, you're really running it for the cash flow of that unit. Um, then yeah, you can do a structure. The structure that I, I recommend is, um, I don't know, I'll just make up numbers. Say you need a million dollars for the restaurant. And so you put in, you know, $300,000 of your own money. You need another $700,000 in investment. You go out to investors and you say, look, uh, for every dollar you give me, I'm going to give you 80% of the cash flow of the restaurant until you get your dollar back plus, you know, 8%, 8% accruing per year, right? So you get your money back plus interest basically first eight with 80% of the cash flow. I'll keep 20% of the cash flow. So I have some upside in the early days, but once that million dollars is paid back million dollars plus interest or whatever amount that you raised, um, then the numbers flip. Then I get as the restaurateur 80% of the profit and you get 20% of the profit for your investment. The beauty of that is that instead of saying, taking the same amount of money and saying, okay, it's 50, 50 or something like that, the beauty of that is on the long tail in a successful restaurant, the restaurant owner stays motivated to make as much money out of that restaurant as possible. Right. And the investor is getting their initial risk capital back as early as possible. Right. So for the investor, it's attractive because they're getting that money back. Yes, their upside is less because they're getting 20% back instead of maybe a higher percentage. But by getting their money early, a lot of them are more likely to do that. And it's just, it makes the investment look restaurant investments are dangerous, but it makes it safer than the alternative. And that 80, 20 split, we're talking about profit alone. Yeah. Just profit. Would you recommend that there's a, like a cash flow allocated for owners pay on top of that? Or is that 20% owners pay? Uh, yeah, no, I, I think a percentage for owner's pay makes total, total sense. And it really does depend if this is like a single unit and you're planning to be in there and running it day right. to day, or this is, you know, your 10th unit and you're running a management right. company. The bigger groups will usually put a management fee, right? right. So they'll say 5% of the cash flow of the restaurant is going to flow to the management company and we're going to provide services, right? We're going to do the accounting. Yeah. I think restaurateurs get in trouble, not factoring in their paycheck. Yeah. Right? There's, there's your pay. And then there's profit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And certainly if you're in the restaurant running it, then yeah. I mean, for sure. You have to be paid, right? right. You got to eat. Right. Um, uh, so I think we can move on. Thank you for breaking that down a little bit further. I'm sure there's a lot of people that got value from that. Um, so you sold Prometheus to Blackboard. We're, like what's going through your mind right now? The year's 2002. Yeah. Are you so thinking I'm, like, I'm done, I'm retired? <laughs> no. So I, I, didn't, I didn't make what they call FU money, which is money to never have to work again. I, uh, but I, I, did, I did very well for, I guess I was 20, what was it, 2002? So I was 27. 27? Yeah. Wow. So I was 27 years old. So um, no, what I was thinking was, you know, back to this point of trying to be conscious of what I was doing, right? So like, I had a gig at Blackboard that was paying a lot, right? They gave me a salary and a desk and I could have stayed at Blackboard and, and continued to work in higher ed tech. But I took that moment of during the acquisition and said, but is that really what I want? Or do I want to do something different, right? Do I want to experience more? I knew higher ed tech really well at that point. That's all I had done. And so 
I was like, no, actually at this point I just had a good run. I want to give back. And so I, I came home and talked to my fiance at the time and told her I really wanted to give back. And I, I literally was like, we should just go feed people in Africa or something. And she was like, well, I actually was thinking about the Peace Corps before we met. And so we looked into the Peace Corps together and decided to join. And so the two of us, we got married before we went, but we got married and went over um, into the Peace Corps for a couple of years to, to give back. And that was a, a pretty wild experience. How did this experience influence who you are today? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about the Peace Corps, and I... Um, you know, it's for those who are not aware of the program, right? Been around since the 60s. It's a two year and three month commitment where the United States government puts you in a developing country. You spend three months in uh, intensive language training, living in a house uh, that speaks no English, and then two years in a community where there are no other Americans and you're volunteering. So I was in a little town called Kriva Palanka in the corner of Macedonia, Serbia, and Bulgaria middle of nowhere in the Balkans, a little town of 20,000. And my wife was teaching English and I was doing economic development. And so I say all of that because the impact is that you get to see part of the world and experience a life that you literally just can't experience in the U S right. It's just, it's, it's uh, very eye opening. The average household income is $300 a month, wow. but people are comfortable. Like there aren't people starving. There's no homeless. There's no hungry. Um, but they're also not rich. Right. And so, um, uh, yeah, it's a pretty amazing experience. You learn a lot about life and yourself. And, you know, a couple of things of my takeaways were one, I thought, you know, I, you know, whatever, I worked really hard, right? Because I was an entrepreneur and started a tech company. And so I, uh, I was like, yeah, I need a break. I need time off. And I got there and I was like, oh my <laughs> God, no, this is way too slow. I went from flying a jet into a brick wall. Like, <laughs> holy moly, you don't get a lot done in a town of 20,000 people. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, when there's no economy, it's hard to do economic development. Let me say that. Um, so yeah, you know, you, 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 you have time to think. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, just, you know, seeing how the, the rest of the world lives really. So ultimately two years and three months later, um, you're, you're after hitting that brick wall, uh, <laughs> doing your, you know, your service, giving your time. What, what, what was your frame of mind when you came back? Cause there was definitely an itch. Yeah. So I didn't come directly back. I basically, as that was starting to wind down, I was trying to think of what I wanted to do next. I knew I wanted to start a business that was more hands-on because I felt like one of the weird things about the software industry is like, I never saw my users. Like I had, you know, 250,000 students using my software, but I never saw anything. Right. right. I was just in a room writing code. And so, um, so I wanted to do something more, more tangential. And, uh, and so I applied, <laughs> I applied to the uh, top five uh, schools of finance in the world, and one let me in. So I decided I'd go there. <laughs> this is after you have your master's in finance? No, no, this was the master's in oh, finance. Okay, I yeah. okay. No, so I, while I was in the Peace Corps, I applied uh, to a bunch of fancy schools, and uh, only one let me in, London Business School, and so that's where I went. And honestly, the only reason they let me in is they were a client, and so they actually knew me, and I was uh, able to get a recommendation from the CTO. But as I mentioned, I had a 2.0 in philosophy in my undergrad, <laughs> so my credentials weren't killing it uh in the academic department um so you got in i did um, get in this is 2004 yep if i'm doing my math so i think that's right while going to sc- back to school for your master's you're thinking i'm gonna open a restaurant well no so i went to school <laughs> for my master's and didn't know what the heck i was gonna do um i was still trying to figure it out and i made friends with um, you know a number of people in school and two gentlemen in particular um, one was a lawyer or one is a lawyer still. And one was a banker. And, um, 
we hung out and we talked and we went to lunch and we talked about wanting to start a business. Um, and, uh, we kept eating in a conveyor belt sushi restaurant in London. And at the time there was a chain of conveyor belt sushi places called Yo Sushi that had been successful, raised private equity, had opened 40 or 50 restaurants in Europe. Did they have one in Austin, Texas? Uh, they had a few in the U S and they all failed and they left. Yeah. They opened about 15 in the U S about 10 years ago. So Um, Roy is one of these people, right? Is Roy? No, I met Roy 10 years later. Oh, okay. never mind. Sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, so the three of us never worked in a restaurant in our lives. I mean, I was a dishwasher at 16 for a minute, but got fired for smoking too much pot. And, uh, uh, and, um, yeah, but we found this one restaurant. It's that we really liked. And so long story short, we hired the executive chef and decided we were going to essentially, we wanted to be the Chipotle of sushi, right? At that time, Chipotle was blowing up and the idea of fast casual was on fire, right? It was 2005 and a bunch of concepts were starting to do that. And we were like, well, nobody's doing it in sushi and the conveyor belt concept's cool. And so we will get this great chef and we'll bring him over and we will, you know, open hundreds of these and be geniuses. I never understood why the conveyor belt concept didn't take foothold over here. Like, the yeah. way it does in other places. It's a great concept. I'd like to think so. Um, I mean, I feel like traditionally, like you go to a sushi restaurant and it's not like you have a relationship with like the, the sushi chef. They're usually off in the corner. It's not like you're missing that element of things. Right. Like, now I'll tell you the lesson that I learned after uh, spending a lot of time and money on this question is the reason conveyor belt sushi doesn't work in the U S is that, uh, it actually does work beautifully when you have the right demographic and the right foot traffic, but the demographic here is very sensitive. And so as the incomes go down, not dramatically, but as they go down, when you say here, do you mean this the, market the, the, or United the United States, States of okay. America? I opened restaurants in California, Boston, Texas, Florida, Virginia. I opened them all over and the same pattern held. We could open like in Boston, we opened two restaurants, one in Natick that did very well. And it was, you know, it's a high demographic. And then we opened one in uh, Braintree, which, you know, the South shore Plaza is a very busy mall. It had two and a half times the foot traffic of the Natick mall where we had a restaurant. They're only 40 minutes apart, but it did one fourth of the revenue. Can you imagine? So we were hitting one in 10 people 40 minutes apart. And the only difference is the demographics and they weren't like radically different, you know, but they were different enough that I like to describe the sushi uh, demographic as a cliff, right? It's as you get to a certain level of income, people just don't eat it. Um, I love sushi. As, as do I, as do I, <laughs> I get although, guilty eating it sometimes. And the more I learn about what's going on with the fishing. <laughs> have you done conveyor belt sushi? I have in yeah. Austin, nice. Austin, Texas. Yeah. And I've, I really enjoyed the experience. Honestly, I thought it was fun. I like, I like the idea of just like, I don't know. It's kind of too easy. It's like, yeah, that's you, what we liked about it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like you as the consumer, like you see this delicious piece of sushi going by, you might be full, but it's just like, all I got to do is just stop. The, and there it is. <laughs> that's what we loved about it. So the three of us were in, in London, which is not a cheap place to live. And, uh, and we were eating at these places. Actually, this and, is a good, this is a teaser. Okay. This is a teaser. We're going to take a break. Sure. to Thank our sponsor. You. Thank you. Oh, sweet. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure you're on this ad. Nice. Uh, and thank you. And we'll be right back to talk about what kind of unpackage the, the full picture of how you became a restaurateur. And I'm sure awesome. the story will come out of it. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. There are a lot of elements to consider when growing your restaurant. Are you connecting with your diners enough and with the right message? Or could your kitchen put out more orders than your dining area has room for? It can be a lot 
and very overwhelming when you got into this business for the food and the people. And that's why restaurants get Pop Menu. Pop Menu is the restaurant technology designed to make growing your restaurant easy. With Pop Menu, you can attract more guests to your website that's designed to easily collect their contact info and data so you can see what your guests love and why they dine with you. With Pop Menu, you can also stay top of mind and build authentic relationships with guests by using modern technology that drives new and repeat business and also pop menu lets you make all your systems work better together improve margins and conquer the chaos of restaurants digital presence pop menu technology for restaurants ready to grow if you are a restaurant unstoppable listener you can get 100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Restaurant Unstoppable Network is back, baby, and we're better than ever before. We already have six live events in the works, and we're just getting started. If you sign up for Restaurant Unstoppable Network right now, you can be a part of these six live events. We have Casey Anton, the author of Profit First for Restaurants, talking about Profit First. We have Christine Miles, the author of What Is It Costing You Not to Listen, and It's Costing You a Lot. Tom Sterner, the author of The Practicing Mind, fully engaged, and it's just a thought to help you get into that right that right mindset and to will your future into existence. We have Kathleen Wood, the woman behind One Thing, who's helped so many of our past guests focus and channel their energy to doing one thing really well. We have Mike Payton, the former chief visionary officer, or whatever title you want to call it, but he was the guy behind the entrepreneurial operating system, EOS, uh, the, the, the traction library of books. We're going to get him in the network to talk about EOS. And we have Dave Nitzel and Dave Domzalski, co-authors of the bar shift and hospitality DNA to talk about their findings in their most recent book, hospitality DNA. We have a great lineup coming your way. And all you have to do is head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash whatever the episode number is. You'll find a link and a banner for RU network. Click the link, Get a 30-day no-strings-attached trial, and the first 50 people to sign up will get a free Restaurant Unstoppable t-shirt. And if you opt in to the annual plan, I'll throw in a Restaurant Unstoppable hat and a mug. But you got to act fast because these are going to go real quick, I have a feeling. And thank you for your support. We are back, and you had, we're just start to you were just getting into the story of how you had this idea for conveyor belt sushi, I believe. Yeah. So take it from there. Yeah. So the three of us were in London eating at these places and, and um, you know, one of the things that really inspired us was what you were just saying about how easy it is to just take another plate. And so, you know, you sit down and as Americans, we, we just don't like to sit still that much. So as soon as we sit down, the food is there. And so you're consuming it. And instant gratification. Yeah, instant gratification. And you eat quite a bit of it because it's constantly coming by and you're done. And the average seating time is so fast. So our restaurant, we still have a place here in Tyson's Corner in Northern Virginia. That restaurant will seat, you know, 10 seatings in a Saturday. Uh, it's crazy. The average it's, seating time is like 28 minutes. That's crazy. Is there uh, any data that supports the amount of sushi alone that people consume in one of these sittings versus traditional sushi? Oh, that's a great question. I, don't I would assume it would be more. Yeah, no, I um, I don't know that specific answer, but yes, I'm sure it's more. There's no question. I mean, the reality is 
it's just there. So we make 75 different sushi plates and so types of sushi. And so, yeah, as you sit there, there's just a constant parade of things I haven't going had that by. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so what are we like when you first were having this conversation, when you're the, the idea is sparking, what was the appeal to you? What was well, like, so why is this a good business? You I already think, touched on some of the things. Yeah. I think unlike probably most of, I'm guessing most of the people that you speak to, it was not a deep desire to be in the restaurant business. So the three of us, none of us wanted to be chefs. None of us had food backgrounds. None of us had hospitality yeah. backgrounds, like a banker, a lawyer and a tech entrepreneur. Right. So like, this was, we were looking at it as a business. So we basically, I mean, which is good. Yeah. I think that's, if anything, that's where people who are restaurant tours or chefs or whatever, don't, they don't think about the business side of it. They think about the other, like the ego side of it or whatever, the passion. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, it's okay. No. And we definitely came at it from a very different angle for better and worse. Right. Cause there was a lot of stuff we didn't know that it would have been nice to know, but but no, we looked at it very much like a business. So we pulled a lot of the data on um, restaurants in the United States and, and in, uh, in Europe and on, on conveyor belt sushi and private equity and what money people had raised and you know, all of the, that kind of stuff and put together a business plan um, to open up restaurants in the U.S. and um, yeah, raise some friends and family money, put some money in ourselves and opened our first place here in Washington, D.C. in 2005. Well, I would imagine one of the downsides of doing something like this is the initial investment the build out of something like that, the, the probably not cheap. No, it was expensive and, um, it was expensive and we didn't know what we didn't know. So we didn't know that like we should have been patient and held out to take a previous restaurant space and convert it, starting something that had never had a hood. We could take over another conveyor belt sushi. No, 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 no. the <laughs> conveyor belt's fine, but even like the hood, I mean, uh, you know, venting a restaurant space is expensive. We were downtown on 17th street. We had to run a, a hood up an 11 story building, right? What like were you cooking? I needed a hood with sushi, chicken teriyaki, uh, right? I mean, you still have some cooked food. Um, you know, we still had a liquor license. We had sake and all that good stuff. And so what you knew now, would you maybe have, would have like bypassed on the teriyaki and done just, yeah, that's what I'm saying about not knowing what we didn't know for sure. So like our place now in Northern Virginia, uh, we use a hoodless oven because our chicken is like 3% of our sales. So is it the best chicken you've ever had? Definitely not. But if six people sit down and one wants chicken, we can do it. It's there. Right. And so, um, yeah, but like 90% plus of the food is, is sushi. Um, another thing. Well, uh, so, so, um, that's my train of thought. So we, we brought a chef over from London. That was one of the things I think we did do right. Uh, a chef by the name of Miguel Choi, uh, who was really talented um, and, and did a great job. Um, but we made a lot of mistakes. We, we had never done this before. So no we brought what him you know in. Now. Like, what were those big mistakes? Oh, man. So uh, the number one mistake was we simply didn't have enough seats. And so we were packed at lunch, like line out the door. How packed. many seats? Uh, 36. Okay. Um, 36 seats on a conveyor belt. But... Uh, packed at lunch, but it was a commercial business, the CBD, the commercial business district. And so we were really busy, but for like an hour and 20 minutes, so right? Capitalize <laughs> That's that right. Volume. And so dinners were slow. Weekends were dead. Lunches were packed and everyone thought we were printing money. And like, you know, my friends would be like, Oh my God, I saw the line at your place. You're killing it. We were in the Washington post three times for our food, like all this great stuff. And we were losing money because there just weren't enough seats right. for yeah. an hour and 20 minutes. You couldn't do the revenue. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, there was, there was, 
was uh, there were a few things like that that were that were tough. Um, well, I'm thinking like the cool thing about sushi is you probably could have. I mean, you, your people probably could have gotten there if you open at 11 o'clock for lunch, get there at nine. Sushi has a pretty good shelf life. Yeah, so you could probably get there, pre-make a bunch of sushi. No, that's right. And we did takeaway. So one of the things we pivoted to is we did a lot of takeaway out of the front of the restaurant, and so we did uh, yeah uh, pre-prepared sushi out of refrigerators and you know chicken teriyaki bowls that kind of thing, and did. I did a lot of revenue out of that space, out of that tiny, tiny space. Um, so volume, think about throughput because you only have the seats and the time. To, yeah, like, and specifically... Don't limit yourself to the real estate, right? Yeah, specifically By, the time element of it, right? Yeah. We thought about the number of seats but didn't really get our heads around. You only get you know, 60, 70 minutes at lunch in a commercial business district right. area. So The initial operating expense of the build-out. Yeah. We also underestimated just the amount of time it takes to find sign permit build and open. And when you have a fair amount of corporate overhead, cause you want to open a bunch of restaurants, uh, you can get clobbered on that, right? Cause you have all this overhead and it where just do, takes a long time for the revenue to come in. Where do you go to get an assembly or like a, a conveyor belt? Like, yeah, like, there is a company in the United States that does it, but we brought all of ours in from England. There okay. was a company in the UK that did all of the, um, Itsu was a brand there that we really liked. So we used the same company. They were phenomenal. So we would have the architects here do the design and send it over and they would manufacture it to the, you know, to the, to perfect element so that when it came in, it would fit. You still have one location, mm-hmm. two locations, uh, just one COVID killed one and we're down to one now. Okay. And that's in DC, right? Uh, Northern Virginia. Yeah. Outside of DC. Yeah. Got it. Just around here. I was looking it up. Wasabi, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, trying to think any other lessons and because you had to the first restaurant yeah Yeah. oh no i mean a lot more over the 10 years i mean that was the barely scratched the surface yeah the 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 biggest lesson uh i think we learned um in the beginning and this is very much plays into margin edge later and that is uh just how hard it is to know your numbers like people talk about how restaurateurs may not know all of the costs coming from somebody with a a master's in finance yeah no what's funny is like so when you think (laughs) you're not alone no no no, when you think about my partners right the lawyer was an m&a attorney that had worked on billion dollar deals the banker was an investment banker that had worked on all sorts of financial transactions and after he left wasabi was a consultant for mckinsey one of the top consulting firms in the world consulting with bank cfos in europe during the financial crisis super smart guy yeah really financially dialed in and I, you know, I also had a master's in finance. And so, yeah, no, we, we understood finance. The hard part is that, uh, and we didn't recognize this when we got started. The hard part is the number of variables moving simultaneously. So you've got, you've got revenue changing every day. That is very hard to predict. You've got like Wasabi literally has 800 different things that we buy. Each has a different price. You've got labor that you're trying to schedule. So you've got literally 70, 60 or 70% of your spend is changing day to day. And your revenue is changing, changing hour by hour. Yeah, and you're trying to <laughs> and you're trying to hit a ten to fifteen percent profit margin if you're lucky, right? So you've got zero room for error. And so, as finance people and data people, when we started the restaurant, we were really frustrated at our lack of visibility. And so, um, that actually, I'll tell you actually a funny story that inspired uh, what became Margin Edge. So. At the time, um, the, the bank, how far into the journey is this? Like two months. Okay. No, no. So we opened our first restaurant, like, you know, it took eight or nine months to open, but once it opened, it was immediately apparent to us that we did not have the kind of information that we wanted. Right. And so, um, and I know it was less than one year because where the story goes is that the banker, 
is a German national. We're still friends. Actually, I was just visiting him a few weeks ago. So um, the banker was a German national. He'd gotten an H-1B visa to come over with his family, but it was for the fiscal year starting on October 1st, and we had opened the restaurant like five months before that. September. Congratulations on eight years. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Um, As of this month. And so he... he, um, uh, So I was scanning invoices and sending them to him, and he was doing all the books, right, because he was our CFO. And so he called me one day and said, this is really dumb. I want to, I'm going to find a company in India that will type these invoices into the accounting system so I don't have to. And I was like, Norman, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. Like, that's adding so much complexity to this. You should just be doing it. And he argued with me, and I still remember that conversation to the day because we fought about it. And of course, he ended up doing it because that's what he wanted to do. That's fine. I actually and, uh, had this argument today, ironically. Oh, really? Yeah, with somebody. To, uh, so I host coffee with Eric, uh, where it's basically people in our network. We can come. We just talk about whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm really excited to go have my conversation with the CEO of Margin Edge. And we started talking about like the how do you like value the cost of that doing it yourself. Yeah. Or outsourcing to streamline the process. Yeah. Right. And that's essentially what he was trying to do was to outsource it yeah. to a virtual assistant. Or no, that's exactly time. right. Yeah. 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 And there was no software, just outsourcing it to a virtual assistant yeah. is exactly the way to think about it. Um, but he did it. And the funny part of the story is that, you know, obviously it all evolved, but that became the beginning of Margin Edge 10 years later. And uh, today we have 300 people in that office. Uh, we have 600 people overseas working for us, but 300 wow. of them are in that office that, that I, office that I thought was a terrible idea. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Um, so, so yeah, so the, I would say the number one thing we learned on opening was just how hard it was to track all that data and how to stay on top of it and to know what your numbers were so you could make intelligent decisions day to day. But it's absolutely crucial that you do track the data and that you look at it every day and you're constantly, yeah. like, like you said, there's constant variables. The prices on these things from your, your vendors are constantly changing. That's right. You need to go with the best price to increase your margins, but how can you possibly stay on top of all that? And also just make sure you're breaking your fish down properly, right? right? If you're buying too much fish, too much tuna because it's being broken down poorly and the bloodlines aren't being cut out right or you're cutting your portion sizes too large your 10 percent margin can disappear in a flash right um so many variables so many and you don't know until you you start drilling down and and it's not and it's not saying they don't know because they're not paying attention or they don't care it's because it is literally too much information they're just too many variables you cannot have all right. of that in your head it's interesting because i was just talking to adriel labrowski uh labarski sorry um who specializes in helping restaurants develop their corporate st- uh, sustainability plan nice. but this is a big part of what you're talking about yeah. and sustainability and all these things it's just when you start track when you get access to the numbers and you start following the numbers they'll lead you yeah, yeah. to these places and 100 like, you can gamify it yeah and you can make it like the, the great game of business, just yeah. like you're, you're, you know, encouraging, you're showing your, your numbers to uh, your team on how to become more profitable. There's the uh, carbon accounting, right? Where your carbon footprint, but yeah. this leads to profitability because if you reduce yeah. waste, that's right. You're also saving money. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's one of my stuff. favorite stories later on is when we built margin edge and one of my, one of my favorite restaurateurs here, Greg Caston owns a few restaurants. One of them's, um, Tony and Joe's in Georgetown and we built the theoreticals. You could see what you actually sold versus your theoreticals. And we put his, um, sea bass in first. It was literally the first time we ever did a theoretical and he, uh, he only makes it on one dish. So it was super easy. How many ounces of sea bass are supposed to go on a dish and what's the, the button in the POS and you map the two together. And, uh, he was using 25% more sea bass than he should be using. And then, he flipped out. He was literally, every time he sold sea bass, he was losing money every time somebody bought that dish. And he went into the kitchen and he had a fish cutter who had been with him forever. He was just cutting the fish too wide. 
It was just that. Like, it's just, it's not that hard to put a few extra ounces but what on a piece of fish. him to go look? That my theoretical, that's what I'm saying. Exactly. He looked in margin edge. Yeah, I mean, it's... Until and, you have the numbers, you don't yeah. know where to start looking. And that's not something you could know without software. You right. just couldn't. I mean, technically you could, but the work would be brutal. Yeah, it's not realistic with no. all the other variables that a restaurateur has to be on top of. Um, so this... It all started where you're, you're uh, this is one of the reasons why I love interviewing restaurateurs who have non-traditional entries into <laughs> the world of hospitality because historically I feel like it's, you, you go, you work in restaurants, you learn as much as you can from sure. the people you work for, and then you go and you, you kind of like, you know, you get the framing, like it's like, yeah. a, it's like a stamp, you know, like this yeah. is how you do it. Yeah. But you, you get people from different backgrounds with different perspectives uh, who study philosophy <laughs> and they go, why are we doing it like this? You yeah. know, that's what happens when you have a tech person, a master's in uh, <laughs> finance and a, a lawyer. Yeah. They go, wait a second. And, but you're seeing more and more engineers and entrepreneurs for and tech sure. startup people getting into this industry. And it's cool because we're turning the industry upside down. We're saying like we're, we're taking like this 1905 business model that everyone kind of rinsed and repeated for a hundred years. Right. Then all of a sudden, like overnight people are like, why, why are we doing it? And then when they find a solution to, to do it a better way, they build a business around it. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's exactly what you did. And yeah. That's a cool thing about this industry. No, it's true. I, um, I, uh, I also, it's also, it's so easy to lose so much money in the industry as well. You learn a lot of uh, empathy for how difficult it is uh, to run these restaurants too. It is, um, it is Not a lot easy. harder than we thought before right. we got into it. It's my side project to talk people out of opening restaurants. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I was told early on is the best way to make a million dollars in the restaurant industry is start with two. Right. <laughs> so let's talk more about, cause I do want to like, um, I feel like there's more to the story of um, wasabi. Right. Yep. So you start with one location yep. uh, within the, a couple months you say, Oh, here, here's a, a better way to track all of this information. Yeah. And that was this. just a thing. Like we did that just to and make that was our just data entry. Uh, well, no. So basically that evolved over a few years. So it was data entry first and then, um, I had actually built Prometheus originally, and so I have some, I can code a little bit. And so I built um, a tool that would tie into our point of sale system and pull the sales data out and also allow the managers to enter some other information like payroll. And so we were able to get like a running PL um, in just for our own uses. So it was ugly, but it worked, right? There was no yeah, you, external use. So, so Margin Edge was a, a thing of, um, I mean, it started in essentially 2005 when you started your restaurant. No, no, no. So, so margin edge really distinctly started in 2015. Well, cause um, that's what I thought, but yes. it sounds like you were kind of developing it well, unintentionally over 10 years. I would say we were, I was working on the concept. I was, I saw the problem and we were doing some work to help us function as a business, right? We knew we needed live numbers. And so we built this, this thing that I hacked together that allowed us to get day to day numbers. And, but my focus was absolutely on the restaurant group and this was not software that could be licensed or sold. So it wasn't really, margin edge but it was it was solving the you're building systems for your own yes exactly the in the old days we used to call that an intranet but basically it was an internal system and um and so yeah i went on to open a dozen wasabis around the country and we did a couple of different versions of it so what was Um, yeah what was the evolution because with which each with each location you kind mm -hmm. of you know, probably fine tuned. Like you learn through. Yeah, we had a, we actually had a pretty clear breaking point. So we did the first one was a conveyor belt sushi place uh, right by the White House, Seventeenth and K, and then small, uh, more of a commercial business district area. The second and third places we tried true fast casual. So walk up to the counter, order sushi's made for you, and you carry it out. No conveyor so belt. So why'd you change the model? 
because the first one was not working. And like I said, it was busy for like an hour and a half, but did not make money. Um, And so we felt like the fast casual ones would be a lot cheaper to build. Right. Um, And, you know, we were still parts. Yeah. And we were still in this idea that like we wanted to be the next Chipotle of sushi. And so we thought maybe something that looked more like sushi or Chipotle and function more like that place in Columbia is uh, fusion sushi. Do you ever follow there? So I think it's fusion. Mm -hmm. Maybe never mind. No, I don't know that. That was their same same claim. Idea. Yeah. Yeah. So actually a bunch of people tried it. We all failed. Nobody has done a good job at it. The problem is sushi just doesn't lend itself to that. But, but we did, we opened two of those. I actually basically opened one a year. So Oh six or seven. And then in Oh eight, uh, I opened one in a mall. This is the one that's still open in Northern Virginia. So in, um, a really large urban shopping mall, that's one of the busiest, it's a top 10 mall in the country for foot traffic. So very busy urban mall we put it in the dead center. So they literally were tearing out their fountains in the center of the mall, no walls uh, between two escalators, uh, 1800 square feet. So a full size restaurant. Um, and, uh, and we convinced them, which was hard. They actually flew a bunch of people out here from Santa Monica and looked at our restaurant and negotiated forever, but basically convinced them to let us put this thing, a floating sort of conveyor belt restaurant in the middle of their mall. And that killed, I mean, really killed all the foot traffic. Oh my God. And to this day kills, um, even today with the mall setting. Yeah. So we opened that in 2009. It's 23. So 14 years in and the only down years were 20 and 21, right? 20 and 21, of course, were, were, were what they were, but right. it's just killed. Um, yeah. The thing with malls in America as a quick side note is that, yes, there are many dying malls, but there is a, um, there's almost a resurgence happening. Right now. Well, and specifically there's, there's a handful, probably 200, 250 that are, um, consolidating. So basically people, are less likely to go to the second and third tier malls, which makes people more likely to go to the first tier mall. And what so, do you mean by that? I'm not familiar with the tiers. Uh, so if you just imagine like, you know, take this market in Northern Virginia, we had three or four malls that were very weak and Tyson's was the strongest of those three or four. So those others are all closing. And so all that foot traffic is consolidating around Tyson's corner mall. Got and so it. that mall is just busier and busier by the year. Yeah, unless you're in San Francisco. <laughs> oh. Well, I don't know. The West uh, Westfield had a beautiful oh, God. San Francisco. Yeah, um, but have you heard the horror stories? Yeah, oh yeah, my goodness, yeah. man. Uh, so, um, but I, anyway, so so we opened that one, um, and the fun note on that one is uh, it it just so outperformed our expectations that we realized that that was the model that we wanted to do. Well, I think it's weird because as like there's this trend right now for these corporate America, like like retailers to transition to more digital presence, online ordering, things like that. Sure. I think that you're seeing like a huge, like these malls for like, you know, a solid five to 10 years, they were just kind of like empty, like you know, no man's land. I'm thinking of like Fox Run Mall and like uh, Portsmouth, or Newington, New Hampshire, right? Yeah. But now what I'm noticing is that there's like this like kind of like it's being like upcycled almost like the malls. Like yeah. They're really, trying the term they're using is experiential. They're trying to become experiential properties. So they're like, trying to bring in things that make you want to go bowling or watch a movie or eat at a restaurant or something that is not just going to right. buy something you can buy online. But it's cool because there's so much void and I feel like opportunity for small, like there, you're seeing a lot of like local, like sure. local operations going there. It's becoming a community of business where yeah, yeah. it's like, it's kind of cool. It's almost like the shell of like this corporate America that, that, that failed. And like now, like the, like the, 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 
the community is moving into the shell and like taking over like in, in, in Newington, New Hampshire, they're doing like this car show. Oh, cool. You know, they have like these old cars that come and like, nice. uh, it's like a, I don't know. It's just interesting to see how that is like transforming. I like it. Yeah. yeah, know, yeah. It's almost like creating opportunity for the next generation. No, that's right. And then, yeah, some of them are doing that. Some of them can't and they're going to be torn down and turned into apartment buildings. And then they're the handful that are still really busy in traditional malls. Like, you know, our, where we are, the, the, Tyson's claim to fame, one of them, is that that mall gets more foot traffic than the busiest Smithsonian. So the Air and Space Museum in D.C. Oh, wow. will get 20 million visitors, and Tyson's Mall will get 25 million visitors. So, so <laughs> as you're opening, you had up to 1.10 wasabis. Uh, not at one time, but I, over the years, I opened and closed uh, a dozen of them. Yeah. What, how many of them were conveyor belt, belt uh, versus All of them were conveyor casual. belt, except the two fast casual we tried. So, and so basically two at, out of eight were fast casual. Two out of 12, oh, yes. Sorry, two out of 12. So the... Um, the Tyson's Mall model, that opening in a, in a mall, was basically what we decided was the winning formula. And so we went and opened a bunch like that. So yeah. that's when I started going to other states because there are only so many super regional malls in any given region, right? So uh, that forced us to open really all over Orlando and Boston and Texas. And yeah. I, you know, I wonder sometimes. It's almost, it's almost like you started that concept too early because I feel like now – Finally, there's like this, this, this movement towards automation that's starting to happen. Well, yeah. So I actually, I can talk about that a little bit. We do use sushi robots, which is very cool. So there's a bunch of automation in the restaurant. Um, uh, and also there is a chain now that, uh, called Kura Sushi that is the first one that seems to be doing well as a conveyor belt sushi around the U.S. Um, what are they doing different? Yeah, so uh, we, we took what you could call the European model, which is basically the f- quality of the food is higher. It's more like we the type of food you get in our restaurant is the same you would get in a high-end sushi restaurant. It's just served on a conveyor belt for display, right? Uh, what Kura does, they're actually a Japanese brand, a uh, Japanese company that is doing the traditional Japanese model, which is every plate is a 100 yen is the, the Japanese model here. I forget exactly the price, but every plate's the same price. It's inexpensive. And frankly, the quality is not great, but that's like their thing is like you can eat a lot of inexpensive sushi. And, uh, and that model seems to be working quite well. And that's, it's really quite different than what we were doing. Got it. Um, Anything we haven't discussed in terms of the evolution of your restaurant group? Um, ultimately, you said it was the pandemic that were you operating at how many restaurants? before? No, so our big no the big hit that we took in Wasabi was not. I wish I could blame it on the global pandemic. The global mm-hmm. pandemic killed one of our restaurants. The what killed more of them is that I um, I got aggressive after having a couple of those that were working really well and trying to open a bunch of them. And, um, and I started going into malls where the demographic was a little bit lower, but I thought because of the foot traffic being high enough, we would be fine. And just the nature of these properties, they would take a couple of years between lease signing and opening. And so I had a pipeline of a good number of them. And so I opened a good number of them that, that were in demographics that didn't work. And, uh, it went through a very painful, very painful experience of opening restaurants that did terrible numbers and then having to let everyone go and close the restaurant and deal with the landlords and all those nightmares. Do you have any desire to bring it back? To go? I will never open another restaurant. Okay, no, no. I'm done. No. That's the hardest thing on earth. Holy moly. And this is coming from somebody who started two tech startups. Now. Yeah. It was, no. it was oh, successful. Tech startups Start, are so much easier. Souls, right? Um, so, I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> tech is so much easier. I mean, I have all the respect joke, in the world for restaurant you know, owners. I mean, I kid and I'm, I'm like, I started this podcast because I, I wanted to open a restaurant. 
And, okay. I, and I wasn't in the position to open a restaurant. So I said, I'm going to make my life about learning as much as possible to serve enough other people who are in the position to nice. open a restaurant. That's awesome. And hopefully if you, if you serve, it will come back around yeah. some way, somehow. Yeah. After interviewing nearly a thousand <laughs> restaurateurs, I might have scared myself. <laughs> um, I still have the desire. I'm not going to lie, but I'm not going to do it unless I have cash to burn. Like, I, like you said, like a million dollars to literally yeah. light and say, well, I tried. Yeah. And a team of amazing people. Yeah. I will say that the cash flow is increasing and that my network is increasing and I do see myself partnering with people nice. uh, who could like, but there's no way I'm doing this and starting a restaurant. Right. And I love what I do. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? So like, why would I walk away from something that I spent sure. 10 years growing? Yeah. And, for a high risk venture. But at the same time, like I hope that the, for everyone out there who listens to this podcast, I'm sure there's a couple hundred that probably have listened to the majority of my <laughs> interviews and I'm hoping that they are kind of like maybe taking a few steps back. Like I want to do this, but like, I'm going to do it right. You know, like I'm going to put money aside, like, yeah, because it is hard to to, to your point. No, it is hard. And I think, I think if you have investors that, um, that are not betting their own farms and are, you know, aware that they're taking a risk, then I think you can do it in a way that is, um, less stressful. Um, and, I definitely would would recommend that route rather right. than you know again putting your own name on the lease and everything you own into it because it just it is it's risky. I mean, right. there, restaurants you can operate them really well and uh, increase your odds of success for sure, no question. But there's still a little bit of a lottery element in it. Oh, and, for sure. Um, and the ones that do well, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit like crack, right? It's like whoa when they do well, they can really make money and be exciting. But man, they can lose money. Right. So in 2015, paint the picture of where your life is. Yeah. So uh, 2012 through 2014 was that period where we opened restaurants that did not work and it was very painful. And I was flying around the country having to close restaurants and really struggling. And I think, I don't remember exactly, but I think in 2014, we still had six restaurants. Uh, but we were bleeding the, the more of them were losing money than making money. And, uh, and I was really honestly in a very difficult emotional place. It was not good. Um, like really, really it was tough. Can you get into it? I, yeah, I don't mind. It's, um, I think the best, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't mind. So like, let me, I guess just paint the picture. Like what were you feeling? <laughs> uh, it was dark. So, you know, imagine I had raised capital from friends and family. Right. And I had raised capital, a little bit of like semi-professional money from an angel group down in Florida, um, but millions of dollars and had opened restaurants, had opened a couple like the one in Northern Virginia that were killing it. I mean, really very successful restaurant. Uh, but on those exciting numbers, went out, signed a bunch of leases to open a bunch of restaurants. Now, I will say I had a board and the board knew and the investors knew. And so one of the things you know that I like to talk about that's important to me is transparency. And I've always believed that. So I was extremely transparent. So I never at any point felt that I misled anybody. But you can't help but feel guilty when these restaurants start opening up. And like I said, this one in Boston is a perfect example. It opened up and did one fourth of the sales 30 minutes away. Anyone that's been anywhere near a restaurant knows if you do one fourth of your expectation, you are going to lose a lot of money every single day. You open the doors, you end the day with less money than you started every day. And because of the pipeline, there's a two year pipeline on these leases. I had, you know, five or six more restaurants that I had already signed leases and started to get permits and build. And every 90 days for a couple of years, I had a restaurant open all over the country couple of them were fine, but a, a few of them were just a nightmare. And so 
um, as they first one opened and went south, you're like, well, you know, probably okay. These other ones and another one opens and it's like, yeah, right. And so as that, that train wreck developed slowly, uh, it got harder and harder and you start, you know, doing everything you can, right. You start paying vendors as late as you can get away with. You start using your credit card. You start doing whatever you can to make the bills and keep everything going, hoping that, that things will turn around. And, um, we got, what to, was the breaking point? Uh, uh, so do we got to, I think I cut you short. Yeah. So, well, I, I don't know that I would call it a breaking point, but essentially what happened was I got to a place where I was struggling and I was trying to talk to anyone I could and get advice and whatever. And so I reached out to this gentleman, Roy Phillips, who you mentioned earlier, Roy had been uh, with the Outback group for 25 years. He owned the, uh, the rights, him and a partner and the rights to the bonefish grill in the mid Atlantic and had been a very successful restaurateur. I had met him in a totally random way a year or two earlier but I just knew him as a you know uh, trustworthy guy, smart guy. Been in the restaurant business a long time, and so I reached out to him and said, "Look, I'm in a bad spot. I just I need to talk to somebody." <laughs> and he was like, "Sure, come on out." And when I went and met with him, I learned he had just sold his interest back to Bonefish, so he was free. And I was able to talk him into coming to help me look at the restaurant group and come in as a partner and, uh, and give me a fresh set of eyes because I really was we were in a bad spot. And so, yeah, so he came in, we flew around the country, we looked at the restaurants, we looked at the P&Ls, and, uh, and he really helped me realize that, like, you just can't throw good money after bad. Like, as much as you want to, because you've put so much of your time and money in it, you care about the people running the restaurants, and you care about the investors, you care about everything, it's just bleeding, and it was going to kill everything. And so we started pulling the plug and closing restaurants and, um, you know, dealing with the lease issues. I mean, I ended up getting sued by a couple of landlords and ended up in a court in Los Angeles over pigeon shit, believe it or not. That's a whole nother story, but yeah, went through a whole series of, of closing the restaurants that were doing poorly and cleaning it up and, um, and got, and at the end of that had two restaurants that were very strong, that were very cash flow positive. And what I'm, one of the things I'm most proud of is there were no bankruptcies. So we ended up negotiating our, ourselves out of everything. All of the bank debt is being repaid and There's has that been masters repaid. of finance. Yeah. I mean, it's, I wish it was that honestly, a lot of it was just grit. I mean, a lot of it was me going to the banks. I mean, we had done an SBA loan for each restaurant. So each restaurant we did half an equity, half an SBA debt. And those loans were five to seven year loans generally. And, uh, and so we had, you know, I don't remember seven of those outstanding or something, million, millions of dollars outstanding on those. And I had to call the bank and be like, look, here's the deal. You can bankrupt me and you can sell my house and that's it. (laughs) Or, you can stretch the term on those loans, right? You can give me more time to pay them back so that the cash flow month to month is lower and I'm going to keep running these two restaurants that are profitable and I'm going to keep sending you payments and we're going to pay these things down. We are just now, at the end, at the beginning of next year, we will just be paying off the last four of those SBA loans. Wow, and congratulations. it's 2024 oh, and that was 2014. That must feel good though. I stretched them to 10 year terms. Uh, it feels wonderful. But also, I think there's I mean, an underlying message there that like whatever the terms are, they're always negotiable. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yes. I mean, people want to get paid. And so, you know, they recognize that you can't get blood out of a stone. And so... For me, and you know, different people do it different ways, but for me, it was all about transparency. I put everything in front of them and said, look, that's what I got. This yeah. is the best I can do. Yeah. And you can tell me I can do better, but I can't. So well, There is a silver lining to all this. From Wasabi was born. 
Yeah. So, so a true story. So we were doing this thing, right. And we were traveling around and closing restaurants. And I was in a dark place. Actually, from the moment Roy joined, I started to feel better because at least I had somebody that I trusted. That was another set of eyes that I could rely on because I really was feeling bad about the mistakes that I had made. And so he kind of convinced you to kind of accept your losses and to close the restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not even kind of directly. Like yeah. we, we looked at it and we we're like, look, you gotta, you gotta, you got to call it like if it's bleeding money, you got to save the ones that are profitable. And and yes, that meant hard things like breaking leases and negotiating with landlords and dealing with the banks and a lot of things that were difficult, letting people go right. Flying into LA and letting go of the entire staff of the restaurant is a, it's awful, um, awful, but it's the only thing that kept the successful ones open so that we could pay off the debt with the cash flow from those. So what was going on with margin during all of this? Well, there's no such thing. So you're still using the idea of outsourcing. Well, yeah. So we had in India, in this office in Chandigarh, we had, I want to say, two people who did the bookkeeping. And we had this product. I called it Argos. But it was this, um, I mean, I hacked it together. This, 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 it was software, but it was, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't 1% of what Margin Edge is, but it was conceptually that, right? People could type into it and see their numbers and stuff. And so I had that, and I had this team in, in uh, India. And so basically... You know, uh, in the middle of all of this, Roy and I were talking and Roy was like, you know, you really have a mind for software. What he likes to say is actually his line was you're in the wrong damn." He's an old Texan. He said, you're in the wrong damn business. <laughs> you should be in the software business, not in restaurants. Um, and so he and I went out and talked to some other restaurateurs about this idea of what margin edge became. And, you know, Restaurant management systems existed, right? Compete existed. There were restaurant management systems already. What made Margin Edge really unique is that we went out with a premise that no one would ever have to type in any information on any invoice ever. We would do it all. And no one had done that. And to this day, no one does that. There are people who help you with it and people who do parts of it. But to this day, we're still the only people that will take it end to end. And so... Um, and so we did, we went out and talked to people and similar to the story I told about the internet, uh, professor, you know, people were like, mm, yeah, it's not going to work and it's not going to work. The invoices are too complicated. Restaurants buy too many things. It's, there's too much randomness in it. You're just, it's just not going to work. It's moving too quickly. You know, all the things you might imagine. And, uh, and Roy and I came back after a few of those meetings and we were like, yeah, I think it'll work. I think we'll do it. Well, I mean, also I think people are guilty we are, we are by nature linear thinkers. Yes. And we don't take into account that we live in an exponentially changing world. Yes. And what might be a limit today won't be a limit tomorrow. That's right. That's right. It's the classic Henry Ford thing that if he asked yeah. people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Right. right. Um, yeah. No, and that's right. And that's why we, we well, part of why we felt confident in it. And so uh, we did. So January of 2015, Roy and I put some money in a, in a pot and, uh, and started Margin Edge with the idea that we were going to build, yeah, basically a restaurant management system, but one in which all of the data processing would be done by well, us. There's also another name that we should mention, Bill or Brian Mills. Yeah. So what's how did Brian Mills come into the mix? Yeah. Did, so did you mention his name and I missed it. I did not yet. Okay. No, no. So basically, the way it started was Roy and I were with Wasabi and we were talking about it. And um, did you hire him, Roy? Was he working? Or was he cons- like mentoring he a, you or like I coaching would call, you? I would call him a partner. So he had some equity stake when he came in and he put up some money, had an equity stake and, um, was definitely also a mentor. I learned and I have learned an enormous amount from him over the years. We still work together, so I shouldn't use a past tense. Was he just in your office? He was. Yeah. Yeah, I thought he looked. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, no, Roy is a wonderful guy. I've learned a lot from him over the years. Um, 
Yeah, hadn't met Brian yet. So basically, uh, Roy and I, at the end of 2014, decided we were going to do this. We created the company. Uh, and then we, I, went, I reached out to some people I had known from the tech days. And there was a gentleman named Sam Lieber, who also was a co-founder with us. He's not with us currently. But Sam was um, uh, a CTO at another software startup. And Sam and Brian worked together at that startup. And so Sam and Brian came over as our tech co-founders basically got it um so those two came in and then um also a gentleman by the name of mike spatani who's not with us now but it sounds like people died when i said that but uh <laughs> they're all very healthy they've just moved on to other things um mike also co-founded with us in those days and so um yeah i mean i think what's really interesting about the startup of margin edge and i'm really proud of frankly is that you know you see a lot of people talk about minimum viable products and you see a lot of people write software and build something that gets a little bit of usage and they start shouting it from the mountaintops and they go out and they raise money and they try to grow the business when they've just started and they barely understand the problem and they haven't spent a lot of time building a robust solution. Whereas you... Where we did the opposite. So we spent three and a half years with the development team uh, in an office located right down the street from here uh, we had five developers for, for about three years. So and this is 2015 to 2018? Yeah, and we just hammered on it. We had Our only clients were basically friends of ours, so friends of Roy's or mine. So we had you know, 20, 30, 40 restaurants using it. Um, and, uh, and we wrote, we wrote a lot of code and frankly, Roy and I were bored for a long time because we were both like, you know, we're not, our, 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 our modus operandi was, we are not going to go out and tell people about margin edge until we're proud of it. Right. And I think that's a good place to take our first break to oh. thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to talk about the evolution of margin edge over the past now eight years. That's crazy. I know it's a long, it's a long time. Yeah. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. Restaurant Unstoppable is partnering with CORE, children of restaurant employees. CORE 
Children of Restaurant Employees, invites you to learn more about their mission and their fall campaign, Serving Up Hope. CORE is an industry-focused nonprofit that provides financial grants to restaurant employees with children who face a life-altering medical crisis or natural disaster. Serving Up Hope is a national fundraising campaign and an opportunity for the restaurant industry to come together to serve those who will serve us daily. There is complete flexibility for when and how you raise money and CORE has ideas to help. Whether you choose to make a flat donation or fundraise through in-store promotions, CORE provides turnkey resources to make your partnership as simple and successful as possible. It does not stop there. Brands who commit to raising $15,000 or more for CORE during this campaign receive logo recognition on the Wall of Hope, a nationally promoted landing page that highlights the companies that have chosen to come together for our industry. Choose to participate and you will help build a culture of caring and demonstrate your support support for employees and those that qualify for a grant across the country. More than 70% of core grantees are single mothers and they critically need your help to continue to provide funds. So why wait? Showcase your commitment and leadership to help employees in our industry and sign up for the Serving Up Hope campaign today. Visit coregives.org to learn more. Together, we can serve up hope for restaurant families this fall. We're back. And uh, so where we left off is that you, you shared the example that a lot of other startups will start with a minimal viable product and they'll just launch and, and try to get users and scale and pivot and grow. But you really wanted to be slow and you wanted to, to figure yeah. it out. You wanted to, to. Well, yeah, I would say we knew the restaurant business. Right. Roy had opened, uh, I forget the numbers, 25 restaurants. I had opened 12 restaurants between us. We had opened and operated restaurants, you know, that we're doing tens of millions of dollars in revenue cumulatively. So we, we'd done it between the yeah. two of us for like 40 years. Like you we, were the target. We market. really understood how yeah. to run a restaurant. There wasn't a lot of new information at that point for us. Right. And so we wanted this product to meet that need. Right. We, we knew what we wanted it to do. We did not need a minimum viable product to test and ask people how, what they did in their restaurant. Right. Like we had a pretty good idea. Right. So when you started with Margin Edge, you weren't quite using that the the camera technology yet. No, we did. So when we that was was that like the beginning of Margin Edge? Paint yeah. a picture of what the like the minimal viable product was because you are much more today. Correct me if I'm wrong. Of course, yeah. I mean, when we started, we had five developers for three years, and now we have seventy. So yeah, we're doing a lot more stuff. But yeah, the 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 min, the I don't like the term minimum viable, so I'm not going to use that. But the the early version of Margin Edge. Just a pet peeve. Uh, the early version of Margin Edge, yes, you had um, uh, your phone. You could take a picture of an invoice. We had a team in uh, Chandigarh in India that would basically see that image and could type that information into our database. And we could then track the individual item costs and post that information into your accounting system. So today, so then it was a photo being sent to somebody who did the, the did the data, the yeah. entry for you. That's right. And in V1, it was literally just a human looking at an image and typing that information directly in. So you're basically creating a process around outsourcing yes. to... Yes. Somebody. In yeah. India. And you know, if you look back in the eighties and nineties, big companies did BPO business process outsourcing. And it was basically taking back office processes and moving them overseas and small companies never could do that. Right. right. You just can't. Or I think at this point in 2015, a lot of restaurant tours just weren't thinking outsource. Sure. It just wasn't on there. Well, and, and outsourcing doesn't work for small businesses. You have to have a lot of infrastructure around it. And so 
you could think of what we were doing as basically automating that outsourcing Got it. Uh, in the, as the first value proposition that we were providing, right? You had to get your invoices into your accounting system. You had to get your sales data into your accounting system. And we did that for you. Yeah. It was a solution for that problem. That's right. One problem that takes up a lot of time and is something that nobody likes to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So why don't you real quick before getting into like any of the details, Paint the picture of what margin is, margin is today sure. in terms of the the technology and what it is that you offer. Sure. Yeah. So we are now in, um, uh, I think, something like 5,200 restaurants, and we're integrated with 50 or 60 point-of-sale systems. So that allows us to ingest everything that's happening in the restaurant from the point-of-sale, whether it's you know every, every item that you sold, every substitute, everything. And then we have um, uh, an app where you take pictures of invoices so we can capture the line item data of what you're buying. And again, it's everything you spend money on. So it could be your utility bill. It could be your liquor. It could be your food, anything. Uh, we do EDI integration. So we're pulling data directly from vendors. Uh, also on everything you're spending money on. What does and, and, EDI stand for? Uh, it's stupid. It's electronic data interchange. Okay. Um, it's just an old, an old acronym, but, um, but basically elect, you know, we, we receive the invoices electronically from the bigger vendors also. Um, and then we tie into 15 accounting systems. So all of that data, all your sales, all your cost data is flowing into your accounting system. And so all of the data entry into your accounting is now done for you automatically. And then in the process, because we've captured all this, we know really everything. We know you know how much you spent on avocados, how many chicken breasts you bought, how many hamburgers you sold. And we can do everything from recipe tracking to inventory tracking to order guide management to... Um, actuals versus theoreticals, right? How much ground beef did you buy? How many burgers did you sell? Are you wasting ground beef? Um, all of it. And the beauty again is that you're not doing the data entry. You're not so like when you're when you're taking pictures of your produce and you're getting, uh, you know, whatever lettuce from different farms and it's coming in different skews. We not only capture the fact that you're buying lettuce, but we will relate the lettuce to each other, which is actually a big part of what we do, right? We we get literally millions of SKUs and we have a team of people stateside. So we have the overseas team that's now 600 people. We're processing 115,000 invoices a week and we have the people overseas using machine learning and humans that get the data off of the invoices. But then we have a team stateside that are actually seeing every new SKU that comes into our database. They're like something like 6,000 a day right now. Every SKU that comes in for the first time and saying, you know, RD space TMT space two slash 20 is a red tomato. Right, it's a box of two twenty-pound whatever pa- uh, pack of red tomatoes. So, like, they're they're relating it. So, when you have a burger recipe with a tomato on it, your burger recipe is up to date. Your inventory pricing is up to date. You're not having to think about all of this. I mean, I, that doesn't sound appealing. I don't know what does. I mean, <laughs> to, to not have to track all that stuff. But and just to make it clear, today you are you still out? Are there still people yeah. that so? I was, for some reason, under the impression that there's an uh, artificial intelligence that you might be using now. That We are. So you take a photo, and there's an, an intelligence that can read that photo. It's both, though. It's okay. both. Yeah. So, so mach- how, what's that divide? So machine learning has not gotten to the point where it can automate that process. Yeah. If anyone tells you that they can use machine learning to fully automate the process of invoices, they either have horrible quality or they're lying to you. Got Those it. are the only two possible outcomes. So what what we do and, and what is popular is called machine in the loop, or sorry, um, human in the loop, right? Human in the loop means that basically when that invoice comes in, we run it through OCR, we run it through machine learning, we do a bunch of analysis on it, we compare it to our data set, et cetera, automated, et cetera. Right. All of that's automated. Yeah. But then 
it spits out to humans based on probabilities, right? So if there's handwriting on an invoice, you know, and this happens 15% of the time, the invoices we get have a tomatoes are scratched through it, right. you know, tomatoes are bad, bleach wasn't on the truck, whatever. That kind of stuff machine learning is terrible at, right? Because a lot of times it'll be just a line and then a two and you have to know, does that mean, right, whatever. So, so that stuff all gets output to humans, right? And so the term is human in the loop. So it's basically the invoices go through machine learning and then that does human. the heavy lifting. Yeah. And at this point, every invoice that we process still has at least one set of human eyeballs before it's done. Every single one. So they go through machine learning, but they just they're just not perfect yet, these these systems. And so, you know, I mentioned in our early days, one person typed in the data. Now, if an invoice, even without the machine learning, an invoice will go through four stages with people doing different parts of it so that the data is overlapping and statistically accurate. And then you layer the machine learning in. So we're doing an awful lot of work to try to make sure that the invoice is accurate. Um, it, is a, it is a non-trivial problem, as they say. Yeah. So what, I mean, what has like... How have you prioritized the evolution of margin edge over time? Um, I would say we've we've invested disproportionately heavily in product for our size as a business, for sure. So, like, we have uh, steadily invested in product. And just this last July, we had our board meeting, and everybody is talking about the importance of cash flow break-even and, and all of these things. Uh, but I made a proposal to the board that I wanted to increase uh, dev spend 40% to do a lot of new things that I, that I think are possible. And they gave approval with flying colors. Like, so we just grew, we're in the process of growing our dev team from, you know, 50 to 70 um, because there's just, it's a big industry. There's a lot of uh, things that we can do to help operators and we want to invest heavily in the long term. We're not here for a quick flip. So what does the future look like? Are you able to talk about any of the things sure. you'd like to do? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so if you think about what margin edge is at the highest level, there's an operating tool, right? Inventory, uh, the actuals versus theoreticals, the recipe tracking, right? The stuff that an operator would do day to day or a chef or a general manager. And then there's the other half, which is the accountant or finance side, which is all the budget tracking. Is your food cost 25%? Is the, you know, are we spending too much on rent and, and how does this uh, you know, what are the profit margins, all that good stuff. And so including cash flow, so we have a payment system on top of the software that also integrates with your bank and pays the bills directly, all that stuff. So when you think about us going forward, there's a lot of work actually on both of those, right? We can help restaurants from a finance standpoint, better understanding their cash flow, better uh, negotiating with vendors, their payment terms, better helping with the, just the flow of funds and, and all of the things involved in cash flow, which for restaurants, as you know, is very hard, particularly in a seasonal business. Um, and then on the operating side, I think a lot of it is going to be around the machine learning and looking forward. I like to say that in margin edge and in most software, almost everything we do is looking backwards, right? What, what our claim to fame is, is that instead of having to wait a long time for your financials, you get them day to day and they're, you're seeing near real time what's going on in your restaurant. But what machine learning allows you to do is look forward. That's my next master's actually. I got <laughs> uh, Yeah. And from Northwestern, um, but looking forward, uh, what machine learning allows you to do is look forward. And when you look at the data set that we've got, right, we've got, uh, I think it's $8 billion of sales data flowing through us, $4 billion in purchasing data. There's a lot of information. And so, uh, you know, it's all anonymous. We wouldn't tell restaurants what each other are doing, but we can anonymize that and use that to train models that'll let us uh, help restaurants look forward instead of just backwards. Got it. And you, you are collecting a massive amount of data right now with all the a different restaurants. Data. Yeah. Uh, so right now, like... Uh, if you invest 
with margin edge as a tool to use, you're getting access to this library of data that, I mean, if you're trying to keep track of the, the, like, how do you know if the price of something changed, right? Like, well, maybe if it is that product is being used in a restaurant in the network, then your, you know, I guess your system would be updated based off of the things that you order. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about Margin Edge is like, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier when we opened Wasabi and there's 800 things we buy and all the prices are changing. With Wasabi, we just know all of that. So, so, and, you know, you might not realize this, but in sushi restaurants, avocado is actually one of the number one ingredients that you use. And so when avocado prices change, we can instantaneously see what that does for every role that uses avocado, right? So we know what our food cost is across the board and what it should be, and, and the same with any of the ingredients. And so, yeah, it's giving you a, a level of visibility that, you know, historically a lot of restaurants would do their food costs once every six months, once every three months, once a year, updating their menus and updating all the prices. And now it's just live. It also will let you see seasonality, so you can literally click on a recipe and see over time like what those prices changed and so if an avocado roll is going to be particularly expensive for you in the summers right don't put it on the conveyor belt right <laughs> put right. something else on the conveyor belt right um so i mean the list of so just kind of summarize what margin is is today um it started with data entry with invoices it evolved to um updates Pricing on your inventory sheets. Yep. Updates your ordering sheets. Yep. Keeps your recipes prepped yep. and plated. Yep. Prices up to date with real time kitchen recipe viewer. Yep. Um, what is that exactly? Yeah, that's kind of cool. We built this actually in collaboration with a large restaurant group here locally, Clyde's, and their executive chef, Steve Lyons, who is a wonderful guy to work with. Um, so, Stephen and I and, and our team um, basically. Basically, Stephen said, look, we're going to roll out Margin Edge, but I don't want to have a recipe book that I print in my kitchen and have separately uh, your application that I'm updating recipes in. I want it all to be real-time and the same thing, right? And so basically, we built this application where you can take a... Uh, Amazon Kindle or an iPad or any any um, any screen like that and log into a different version of Margin Edge that is designed just to be in the kitchen. So it has no pricing information. It doesn't have anything about like the accounting or whatever. It's but just it's, recipes and It looks portions. like a recipe guide, but what's what's brilliant about it is that it's all drill downable, right? So when you're looking at your you know crab cake entree, you can click on the French fries and you can click on the crab cake. You can click down to any of the ingredients. It takes um, allergen information also and rolls that up. So if you put one at the host station, if if somebody wants to ask about allergens, you can answer those questions. And it's it's really kitchen specific in that it... Um, scalability it, with recipes and stuff. Scalability like with recipes, but also down to uh, what instruments to use. You can take pictures of different instruments in the kitchen and say, you know, use this thing for this part. And It's um, almost like a training tool for like how to... Yeah, what, what do you mean by instruments? It's, not, it's like, not like an... I wouldn't call it a learning management system because that was my first business and I know those are a little more elaborate, but it, it will, on the recipe, allow you to, you know, if it says, uh, you know, I don't know... This is a stupid example, but use one tray of um, uh, whatever. You can click on the tray and see the picture of the tray. That was a terrible example. But uh, depending on what instruments you're using in the recipe, you can actually click on those items and literally you see pictures. You instruments. Are you talking about the ingredients? No, I mean the, the actual tools physical you... tools you use in the kitchen. So, so you're like right. if it's a burger, the instrument would be a grill. Um, yeah, but it, it would be, I'm sorry that I am drawing a blank on fancier, <laughs> uh, kitchen instruments. I really should be better at this. Uh, but clearly they're not showing their prep cooks a picture of a grill. It's, right. um, it's the, it's the, um, you know, uh, like portioning instruments. Yeah. So yeah. like if you're scooping, you're trying to standardize portion control. Yeah. Like you use this ladle. I have slaughtered this. Yes. No, a, I'm yes, happy that, that I can come in and, and, and uh, 
talk the language. They're going to help out. So I am clearly not a chef. But I mean, I would see the, the, the practical use of a tool like this is say if you're if you have a big catering order and it came in and it's for like tomorrow when you're well, like, so his, how many people his are you making use, pizza for? Yeah, his use case, one of the restaurants the Clyde's group owns is Old Ebbett Grill, which is one of the top five grossing restaurants in the country. They publish their numbers, so I'm not telling any secrets. They do uh, over $40 million a year in sales oh, wow. out of one restaurant. It's the old, oldest restaurant in Gary. D.C. Uh, no, 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 seated. Like just but a, do they do catering? Is that included? I don't, no, they, I don't think they do catering. It's just, a, it's just a beast of a restaurant. I'm not sure, actually. Um, but it's just an institution in, the, in D.C. It's been there forever. But, but it's a, obviously a very high-volume place. It's busy seven days a week. And um, uh, uh, he wanted the kitchen to be efficient. He wanted to have everybody running off of one thing. He didn't want outdated you know, pages floating around where somebody's got the old recipe for crab cake. Right when that crab cake recipe gets updated, he wants it updated at all stores, updated. yeah, at all restaurants at the same time. Um, so yeah, so that's the kitchen display use. So that that keeps that that covers again the keeps your recipes prepped and plated prices. To, oh wait, no, correct. Yeah, that's what I said before. Uh, prices up to date with real time kitchen recipe reviewer uh, alerts you if the prices of key ingredients jump. I love that feature right there. Yeah, and, so and particularly cool. if you're doing you know bigger restaurant groups that have negotiated pricing, they can load that price sheet into Margin Edge, and then anytime something comes in that's above the price that was negotiated, they'll get a flag so they can make sure that they're keeping their vendors uh, on board. Yeah, and I'll echo again. Determines the theoretical food and beverage cost over usage versus, or sorry, in usage versus actual, and yep. uh, the enterprise solution versus best in class. Uh, so that's actually something that I wanted to talk about on my note right there. Okay. So one of the things, uh, one of the big conversations that we have, you know, in the conversations I have at Restaurant Unstoppable Network is, what is right for you? Um, like what there's seems like right now, if you're if you're opening a restaurant, there's two paths to take. There's enterprise solution, one-stop shop, everything under one umbrella versus the best in the class path. And to me, it seems like, I honestly, like, I sometimes am like, which which path do I consult on? Or I don't, yeah. I don't look at myself as a consultant, but how do you know which path to take, which path is right for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think... Um, you, just to verify, the, so the, under, the viewers or the listeners understand... You are best in class for what you do. Correct. Your marginage is considered best in class Correct. when it comes to what is the actual key term that you restaurant use? management system. Restaurant management system. Yeah. Um, so, I guess let me ask you this: What makes you best in class first, and then we'll go to best in class versus enterprise solution? Sure. I mean, I think you know we have spent a lot of money on software development in this specific. Uh, business. And so, I, I mean, I, clearly that's a big part of it, but fundamentally I think it is starting from those early days of, um, you know, people who really genuinely understand restaurant operations, building the product from the ground up to be something that meets our needs. I mean, it's, um, uh, it is very easy or it is very common, I should say, for people to come into the restaurant industry that are technologists from outside that have not spent a lot of time in a restaurant and frankly think restaurateurs aren't smart because they are not technologists and look down on them and build something because they think they're geniuses and try to sell it to the restaurateur only to realize that actually the restaurateur knows a lot of things you don't know. (laughs) And this thing doesn't actually meet all of the needs. Yeah. I mean, that was one of my biggest pet peeves when I was operating restaurants for 10 years is, you know, I'd get a call from a 
whatever, a 27 year old that was like, Hey, we've got the greatest thing that this technology that's going to make your life so much easier. And I, you know, they'd walk you through it and you'd realize they, they just have no idea what they're doing. So I think the heart of it is that we really do genuinely understand. And we've built a product around that. I think, um, um, this idea that we are trying to remove as much work as possible, but provide the transparency is the heart of it. And then, you know, obviously there's a bunch of features, but, um, but I think that's the baseline. Right. So back to that question, um, enterprise solution versus best in class. Like for me, what I've come to realize is I don't think there's any two scenarios or restaurant tours that are exactly the same. Um, some people I think are better at looking at the best in class approach and they're really, they want the best in class for everything. They're good at sewing it together and they're passionate about technology and that excites them. It's it's the part of the industry that they love and they like, constantly hunting for the next best thing that will help their restaurant be a, a shave an in, uh, you know, a percent off here or there. And like, yeah. that's their jam. Yeah. Um, and then there's the other path, which is maybe you're not so much into staying plugged into the tech side of the industry and you just want a solution that is a one and stop yeah. one and done. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the reality is the one stop shops, um, uh, can solve a lot of needs, but it really depends on, like you said, the business and, uh, and trying to understand the difference between the marketing and the reality. And this is where a lot of this stuff melts down. Like there are several companies that will tell you they are the operating system of restaurants, the two different things, like literally completely different things. And so which one is the operating system if they do completely different things, right? So like Toast and Restaurant 365 both claim to be a one-stop shop that are the operating system for the restaurant, but they literally do completely different things. So like there's a lot of what different companies do that overlap um, and a lot of words that are the same, which is really confusing. Like, you know, online ordering, for example, right? Like online ordering can mean a lot of different things through a lot of different channels. And when we say we have ordering, what we mean is ordering from your vendor, right? So like Olo has nothing to do with us, like a zero. But if you look on our websites, we both talk about online ordering, right? So like getting past just a list of words that people say they do and really understanding what's different about them, I think really matters. And I think when that happens, some of that best of breed versus best of class breaks down because I think we do things that other people simply don't do. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, what are some of the companies out there that you think complement what you do really well? Like if I'm listening to this and I'm about to open a restaurant and I'm looking through the suite of tools I could invest in. And if we're, if we're leaning in the direction of best in class and that sure. appeals to us, like what complements? Well, I'll say two things. Nature? I'm going to give you specific software companies in a second, but before I say that, I'll say one thing that I believe is very important and it matters in this best of breed versus, um, uh, operating system, whatever you want to call it, um, at world is how open the platforms you choose are. And so, uh, not to call them out, but toast is literally, we integrate with 50 point of sale systems. Toast is literally the only one that charges for your data. So like every other point of sale we integrate with, we can connect to them. We can pull in your data, we can plug it in and you can run with it. But when we do it with Toast, you have to pay an additional fee. And guess what? You have to pay us an additional fee because they charge us, and you have to pay Toast an additional fee, right? right. Like, so I don't know. Toast has lots of strong. Is that things, on top of the like, one dollar? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That, that no, the I mean, CFO just got fired for. Yeah, and they, you know, they say so, that they need to monetize more power to them. But you know, if you're going to charge people for their own data, I'm not sure you're in the right spot for the long term. I think that's tough, and so. 
So first I would say, as you look at solutions, look for open solutions, right? Look for solutions that, yeah, maybe you want to use everything they have, but if you decide later you want to plug something in, they're not going to nickel and dime you when you try to do these things or worse, not let other people plug in at all. So, um, so I'd say that first, as far as particular companies, we're big fans of seven shifts. So the, you know, we are back of house. And so we're all of your purchasing and we're 30 or 40% of your spend. Seven shifts is your other 30%, right? They're, they're all of your labor scheduling. We integrate nicely with seven shifts. So their, their data will flow into us and vice versa. I know um, that that's a platform that's looking to evolve beyond labor management. Yeah. They're moving into kind of like we are in the sense that they're moving into the accounting side. They're moving into the payroll. They're moving into tip management. They're moving into some of the things with that HR. are, um, yeah, exactly. They're moving into the things that are, what you would call back of house, like using the same words again, but totally different than what we're doing, right? We're back of house kitchen, they're back of house scheduling and, and HR and that kind of stuff. So no overlap at all in our feature sets. Um, we also like them a lot culturally. They're it's, a great um, company. Yeah. Past sponsor of the show as well. Oh, are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, the, nothing they, but great things to say about them. Honestly, any company that's ever worked with Restaurant Unstoppable, I'm super grateful. I mean, lots of great companies out there, but like you, nothing but awesome things to say about that organization. Yeah. Um, and then on the POS side, we've got a really close relationship with Touch Bistro. Um, that's the one that we're probably closest to, although we do integrate with a bunch, um, including toast and, and others. Um, and, uh, yeah, those are the ones that come to mind immediately. Uh, so on the, the terms of like, I mean, somebody who you're a tech CEO in the restaurant industry. So I'm sure that you're, and you're thinking about getting your master's or are you committed to going back to school to become a, no, I finished my second master's. Yeah, I did it, uh, out of Northwestern. So that was the future, not the future, um, but the, what's the artificial machine, intelligence, machine, machine learning. learning yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a huge subject right now. Artificial intelligence. Machine <laughs> I learning. tell people it might be the most quickly outdated degree ever earned on earth. I got it, in, so? I got it in 2021 and then things have already evolved so much. Well, I feel like, but like the, that isn't, is that not the future? This, I like this world where robotics combined, like the, what well, are they called? The slingshot effect where like robotics, slingshot into like AI and machine learning. What does that mean? Like when those yeah. three things come together, yeah, I mean, I think machine learning was the future before all of the latest buzz with LLMs in the last year. I mean, they've, I think people don't realize how much machine learning is already in their life. Every time you look at your phone, it recognizes your face, right? That's machine learning. Like machine learning is all around you already um, and will continue to be more and more. Uh, as far as the robotics, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, the stuff going on in San Francisco is cool. I mean, they just launched, uh, um, Waymo just launched their cars in DC and is driving around and mapping it out. I can't yeah, wait to get my Domino's is, car. is, uh, doing it right yeah. you can order i know it's not universally wherever there's dominoes but there's some spots across the country right now that are doing that are driverless doing yeah yeah i mean look my sushi restaurant has a lot of sushi robots if you google sushi robots there's there are machines that do um everything from rice cooking to mixing to nigiri and maki um and they've been around for 30 years they're not new they don't need artificial intelligence so yeah i think there's I think there's a lot more coming for sure. Uh, and it's a fascinating, fascinating space. So you said you're never opening another restaurant. No, sir. If you were, where's your mind? What are you doing to be ready for the, the future, the restaurant of the future? Uh, I would like to support the restaurant of the future. I don't know that I want to own it. Um, but as somebody who's, a, I would say, yeah. an expert in the, um, the future as a technology CEO in the restaurant industry. Look, I think, honestly, my my belief is... 
that you, you're going to continue to see the bifurcation of two very different concepts, right? You've got the fast casual and the full service. And so in fast casual, I think you're going to continue to see this move towards what I just did today for lunch, which was in this case chopped. They've got a phenomenal app. Right their stores, the Yeah. Their stores across the street. I literally from my desk hit reorder, go get on the elevator, go down, walk across the street. It's right there on the shelf. I grab it. I'm eating it as I walk back to my office, right? That is fast casual. We, I, I don't prepare food. I don't, I'm not going to make my own lunch. Like that's how I'm going to eat. And so certainly I think in the fast casual space, we're going to see more and more and more of that just sort of automation, convenience, food at your ready. Um, and that's great. But I think there is an absolute permanent and long-term and large space for full service, everything from fast ca- from, from casual full service to fine dining, where it is experiential. You're there for the architecture. You're there for the service. You're there for the food. You're for, there for the ambiance. You're there to get the hell out of your house. The relationships. The relationships. I mean, you know. I think that's one of the most undervalued aspects of what you offer your consumer is you you're, I mean, Danny Myers talks about hiring 51 percenters, you know, the people that are the socially, emotionally intelligent individuals who are the people you want to yeah. see the people like that, yeah. that exist. Give you energy. That, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. If you look at, um, if you look at, I'm a macroeconomics guy. If you look at countries, uh, development paths, as they get richer, they spend more money on two things, healthcare and entertainment. It's just the reality. As anyone moves up the ladder, that's what you want. You want to live longer and healthier, and you want to go out and have a good time. And so I just think that the the full service stuff, honestly, I think has overcorrected on technology. I think the we've gone too far into the QR codes and pay at table and trying to make full service more like fast casual. And there are some concepts that that's fine because they're primarily, you know, in and out kinds of places. But I think the restaurants that are successful are the ones that are going to keep to their roots. Yeah, I see the future being much more dynamic in the sense that, it's not just one option. Like I think Olo is a great example of this. Um, Olo, um, they are trying to give the consumer the option. Yes, you can go sit down. You can choose to engage with the server. You can let the server take your order, deliver your food, bring the check. Or if you need to get out of there because, um, Oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm here while waiting for my car to get finished at the shop. And I thought I would have an hour and a half. Oh crap. It didn't in an hour. Like, like let's get out of here sure. or whatever reason that you could, the infinite amount of reasons that could come up that you might want to leave early. Right. You know, the babysitter feels like they might be getting sick, you know what I mean? Like whatever yeah. it might be, you sure. gotta go. Um, you have that option. And sometimes people just want the option yeah. to be able to go. Sometimes, sometimes the server forgets. And when the server forgets, you're yeah. not trapping the guests and they can be like, I think they forgot. Like, let's just get out of here. Yeah. You know? So no, that's true. My Saturday night, I was a little frustrated that it took a while to get out, but no, I, I think that's right. But I do think like there's so much talk about technology and how it's going to change everything. And I think that's certainly true to a certain extent, but I think sometimes we also overcorrect on it and right. don't realize that uh, we like the human connection. Well, it's weird. It's weird because it's like a lot of it is like, Oh, like, we're overcorrecting because we think this is where the industry is headed. But at the same time, we can't find anybody to, to yeah. operate the traditional, no, true. you know, so like they're being forced. Yeah. Um, that's definitely true. So I don't have the answers. I'm not here to provide the answers. I'm, this is my research. I am looking for answers <laughs> nice. right now. Uh, so, I mean, it's cool to get your perspective. I agree with you that I think that, um, the old way of th- doing things isn't necessarily going anywhere. I think that the, the industry is just going to fragment and there's going to be more options for the consumer, yeah. uh, because there's a lot of different types of people out there and everybody sure. has different needs. Sure. And even where you place the restaurants, right? They're completely different things. Right. Right. Uh, is there anything we haven't discussed up to this point in the terms of like where we're headed as far as the the, the industry of restaurants, uh, what you're doing to be a part of the future? 
um, things we should just know about margin edge in general? Um, news. I, uh, yeah, I don't know that I've got any exciting news. I wish I had something to drop for you. I mean, I do think, um, one of the things I mentioned earlier, you know, that separates us is our strong knowledge of the restaurant business, but it's not just, you know, Roy and I, when we started it, we have leaned really heavily into making sure that we're connecting. And so, uh, we currently have a sales team of about 40 or 45 people and every single one of them has been an operator. Every single one of them. We do not hire technology salespeople and try to teach them about restaurants. We hire restaurant operators and teach them about tech. We are always hiring. (laughs) Yes, we are definitely hiring actually. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're now at 200 people and growing. Our, we're growing almost 100% year over year. Um, you bring up a really interesting point, something that I, I've noticed and that I don't think is well. Uh, this industry is incredible for spurring opportunity. Yeah, um, yeah for not, sure. Not only does it create market because, I mean, it's the we're in the business of feeding people and not just feeding people, but like, I mean, it's just so much more than that. Like all the satellite things that like this industry creates opportunity for other industry. You know, it's so exciting. No. Um, And what I love about the industry more than anything is the number of people who can get into it um, from all different walks of life and that there is no, did you go to this school or that school or where were you born or any of that? It is a, if you can do the work, you can move up. And I have the utmost respect for everyone in the industry having, having struggled through it myself. I know how hard it is. But on that note of moving up, there's so much opportunity because it's not like I think like you can entry level is working in the industry. But if you get that industry experience, if you if you work five, ten years in the industry and you know the language, you understand the restaurant owner, you understand the people in the industry. There is so much opportunity for you beyond the restaurant, sure. yeah. uh, the four walls of the restaurant. There's yeah, people don't realize it's an eight hundred billion dollar a year industry. I mean, it's yeah. huge. It's bigger than the airline industry. Right? And not it's, anybody can roll into the, this whether it's like working for margin edge or another company that they can't speak the language. They don't, right. they can't relate to the, their target market. Sure. sure. Sorry. Did I cut you short? No, 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 no. I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this has been a lot of fun. Thank um, you. I appreciate your time. This is fun. I appreciate your time. I, I, again, I appreciate your support. Margin is margin edge has been sponsoring the podcast now for, I want to say at least three or four years. I want to go say it, Awesome. The, the first conversations back to 2018, just around the time you said that you're yeah, trying we're to get the word out there. Just coming out. That's yeah. right. We hired our first salesperson in mid 18. Yeah. So um, you're doing great work. Thank you. Um, it, you're, this this conversation's well overdue. Um, Thanks for all your support. Oh, of course, man. Uh, the feeling's mutual. Um, so if we're been listening to today's conversation we've been interested in margin edge and uh if we were on the fence what's we're ready to get off the fence what's the best way to connect <laughs> just marginedge.com. we won't let you go once you're there you can fill out a form and, and we'll have somebody contact you and the best part about it is it will be somebody who understands the business i'm gonna throw a little extra on there Marginedge.com slash unstoppable oh there you go make sorry. sure that, sorry. Uh, that you told that you tell that's, them you came that's from the here. only website yeah. marginedge.com <laughs> unstoppable <laughs> slash unstoppable uh so please use our links it uh, shows our sponsors that you know people sure. are listening and paying attention. And uh, one question I like to ask all my guests is, who do you respect and admire in the industry? Maybe some of your operators who you're just like, whoa, these people have it dialed in. They have it figured out. They are mavericks of the industry. They have something to share. Who is that for you? Yeah, I I, um, I I find the question a little hard to answer because I know so many restaurateurs, and so I don't want to step on any toes. I will say one of our very early clients was a gentleman by the name of Tony Stafford who has three restaurants in this area and is what I have always referred to as a restaurateur's restaurateur. He 
he grew up in the industry. He knows it. He gets it. He has three very successful places and he lives it and he breathes it. And if there's a mistake in margin edge, he will call my cell phone on Saturday night and he is not afraid. Right. <laughs> what's is, the name of his restaurant group? Um, uh, Ford's fish shack. Um, it's uh, three restaurants locally. Uh, Tony Stafford, great guy. Um, but I will tell you the person in business that I've dealt with that I admire the most is a gentleman by the name of Nigel Morris, who was a co-founder of capital one. He's a local investor and, and does a lot in the fintech space and is, you know, one of these people that has proven to me that you can be both successful and a nice person, a genuinely good person. Uh, they don't, you know, you hear all the time that people who are wildly successful are all, you know, whatever. Um, but he's wildly successful again, capital one co-founder and successful since then. Um, but it's just been a wonderful person. If to, I to did get with. him on the show, yeah, you're not going to get him. <laughs> I was going to say, if I did get him on the show, <laughs> sorry, what's the angle there for the show? Um, I know Capital One's in. in well, in he's been out of Capital One. Industry. Yeah, he's been out of Capital One now for 15 years. He's in. He runs a uh, investment firm called QED Investors, um, and focuses in the fintech space. And so his his primary area is fintech. Yeah, it's a it's a different segment. Um, I'm making notes, fintech. But I mean, it's interesting because uh, fintech is starting to get involved more and more with the restaurant. It's sure. Like, I mean, you know, that's how we got contacted with them because we do the payment side of this business. And so there's definitely more and more think of like main, uh, what is it? Main vest right now, which is I doing some know. cool stuff. That's really interesting. Actually at one point I thought it'd be cool to connect the two of you guys. Um, cause you said you're looking to get more into the financial side. Yeah, please do. Um, there's another company out of Atlanta. It's all about just crowdsourcing, um, f- you know, money for scale, sure. but doing it in a way that, helps connect the consumer with brands that they want. Oh to invest yeah. In. I think yeah. I have heard of that. That is cool. Yeah, yeah. That's really nice. So you get to basically be a subscriber to the restaurant that's opening. Right. That you're going to eat at locally and that helps exactly. fund them. Yeah. So I love that model. The, the challenge is yeah. if you're a local restaurant trying yeah. to get local financing, there was never any framework that yeah. existed to put you in front of local investors. Right. So it was all out like all over the place. So what the, what they're trying to do is they're trying to, they're trying to create the framework for local people to invest in local restaurants. And right. what ends up happening is you have all these local people who then promote you locally yeah, of because course. they're invested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the way it should be. Yeah. No, know? it's a beautiful model. Yeah. I really I, I love it. I think um I think that combined with some just, you know, help with negotiating leases and right. investment documents and stuff just to help people get started who maybe don't have that background is right. could be wildly valuable. Bo, this has been a lot of fun. My Thank friend. you. One more time, head over to marginedge.com slash unstoppable. Um, if you are interested in Margin Edge, please use that link. It shows them that people are listening and it supports the show. And uh, thank you for all of your support. And thank you for taking the time to be a guest, to share your story beyond Margin Edge. Of course, enjoy it. Learned, man, it, there is no question. You are <laughs> unstoppable. Cheers. Thanks. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Bo Davis, for coming on and sharing your personal story of being a restaurateur and a tech entrepreneur uh, and the story behind Margin Edge, a tool best in class for your invoice processing and far beyond that, they've really grown to uh, integrate with POS systems and streamline process of all sorts of in kinds. And I just want to say special thanks to Margin Edge for being a longtime sponsor and uh, continually showing up to support this mission to change the world through inspiring, empowering, and transforming the industry. Thank you so much for your support. And if you're uh, enjoying this podcast 
and you want more amazing content just like this in-person, on-site content, we need your support. Uh, One way you can support this podcast is by joining my team. So I'm just putting feelers out there right now. But one thing I am in search for, uh, as you know, I'm traveling the country. I am on site. I have mentioned and teased that I'm looking to get an RV and um, I can't do it alone. Uh, We've made an attempt to have a videographer here at Restaurant Unstoppable, Sam was amazing he really helped uh take us to the next level uh but to do this right i need somebody who is with me to help me capture the behind the scenes it's it's a lot to do it all by myself so what i'm looking for is somebody who has a passion for videography and social media uh who doesn't have the tools yet but is just getting started and I can hand you the tools. I've invested in the tools. We have all the cameras. We have all the resources. I just need somebody with passion, desire to learn. And uh, if that sounds like you or if maybe you if you know somebody who'd be interested in traveling the country in RV and connecting with the most successful restaurateurs in the country and building a portfolio, reach out to me, Eric at RestaurantUnstoppable.com. We're not quite ready to pull a trigger, but I am ready to start harnessing relationships and getting the word out there so we can find the right person. Uh, Before we say goodbye, I do want to say thank you to everybody who made this show possible. Thank you to Jared Parisi for your copyright and editing and uh, the work you're doing at Sumadre Podcast. Thank you, Callan Miola, for your work as our community manager in the network. And thank you to Anna Tazin for your executive support and the work you're doing with the Good Kind Consulting. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.